All right, Bizzlecast listeners, I'm here with author and my good buddy, Adam Smiley Pozwalski. We're going to jump right into the interview. Smiley, say hello. Yeah, baby. Welcome to the Bizzlecast. You guys are going to love this one, but first. This fight, I've seen it before. It gets as bad as it can get. Okay. I'm not training if you don't get the treatment. So if I fight, you fight. Ladies and gentlemen of the Bizzlecast, welcome to Bizzlecast 56. I am thrilled and honored to bring back Adam Smiley Pozwalski, millennial author, speaker, motivator, entrepreneur, leader, camp counselor, renaissance man, all around great guy, but most importantly, one of my best buddies in the universe, Smiley. Great to be here, Bizzlecast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jesse. I think this is this makes me an official Bizzlecast uh, co-contributor. Is yes. that correct? Yes, it's your third oh. appearance, which makes you officially a co-contributor of the Bizzlecast. And uh, as I mentioned before, when I've uh, uh, you know um, bestowed co-contributor status to. Uh, uh, to, to to my friends and other contributors, I usually like to buy them something fun and creative. I haven't decided yet what it's going to be, but but you will enjoy it. Um, so uh, I was going to say welcome to the family, but that's like ins- <laughs> insane. I mean, you've been family for sixteen years essentially, or fifteen yeah, well, years. I, I do want to say that I'm really proud of you, and and to see this thing grow and to see you build this podcast from the ground up has been really inspiring. So um, kudos to you, and much respect, brother. Well, if I could throw it back to you without turning this into too much of a circle jerk, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you're, you're that's su- marvelous. <laughs> yeah, that's marvelous. Your success uh, has inspired me to keep going. Um, you know, despite how long it's taken me to build an audience, you've been working on that even you know longer, um, and. Uh, you know, as I've mentioned on some Bizzlecast, but not a lot, you know, I used to co-run a music company right out of college uh, with my buddy, or our buddy, Eric Herman, who's still uh, kind of running the company. Um, but so I sort of had that entrepreneurial experience early, and then I went in different directions and went back to school and been teaching and then, you know, teaching again, back to school. Uh, and so this is sort of an entrepreneurial thing, although only recently with the Bizzlecast have I started to like start paying for ad- advertising and stuff like that, you know, but I'm getting to the point where I'm not going to say I'm reaching critical mass, but I'm kind of getting there. And so one of the things that we're really going to hone in on today, Smiley, if you're cool with it, is sort of the entrepreneurial aspect of, of being an author. Um, so here we are, it's 2016, your first book entitled The Quarter Life Breakthrough, which came out in uh, spring of 2014, I believe has sold over 10,000 copies, even though it was self-published. 
and there's a, a really a mix um, down the middle almost of, of hard copy and digital copy. Smiley did a lot of touring. He speaks. We're going to get into all, all of that stuff. And here we are more than two years later, and you're about to release um, another book called The Quarter Life Breakthrough, um, but this time with a publisher. It got picked up. This is a huge deal. And so I usually like to start with the present, and then we work our way to the past a little bit, how you got here. So, Smiley, uh, give us a little executive summary of what's going on with the new book, how it's related to the old book, when's it coming out, what people should expect, and so on. Go for it, man. Yeah, well, it's really exciting um, to be in a position where you kind of start something on your own, and then it gets some recognition kind of by the powers that be, um, whether you're in the music business, as an artist, as I a call writer. This, I call this the hand of God. <laughs> yeah, the hand of God. And, and I'll tell the story initially of how it happened, but yeah. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of I'll work backwards because I just think it, it, it's, it's interesting. And it kind of is a, a, a lesson in entrepreneurship and hustle and how you kind of start from the bottom. Um, not to be cliche, but I think it's just how it is. Anyone that starts from something, unless they're, you know, parents or the head of a studio or, uh, you know, they're a millionaire, like they got to start from just from, from the bottom. So basically in, in, you know, in 2012, I was working a job in, in Washington, DC, I'd been at the Peace Corps for about two years, great organization. Um, I had a good salary. I had benefits. I was making good money, you know, job security, you know, the federal government in the United States is probably the most secure job you can have. Like, you actually can't get fired. <laughs> I mean, you can literally break the law and not get fired. Um, and, you know, the job on paper was great, but I wasn't happy. And, and I knew I wanted to make a change. And this was kind of the beginning of a of a quarter-life crisis and being stuck and, in, in, you know, really unhappy. And kind of the process for me how that unfolded was I just started to blog a lot. I started to write, I started a blog called what's up smiley.com, you know, super simple blog, wordpress.com cost $18 for the domain name. Um, you know, would blog about silly things like, you know, uh, a Seinfeld joke or a quote from dumb and dumber, or, you know, or serious things about, you know, immigration or things happening in the world. And just kind of was like my platform for, for processing what was going on in my life and processing this time in my life where I was a little unhappy and kind of going through a little, you know, personal unease and unrest and feeling stuck. Um, and so I kind of started to get this idea. I, I ended up leaving my job uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, quitting, moving to San Francisco without, you know, a set job lined up, but with intention to keep writing and kind of change my life. And, you know, I met with an editor pretty early on being like, hey, you know, I might want to turn this into a book. You know, my blog's gotten some some good, uh, a lot of followers and people are kind of into this. And I had a friend that worked at a, a small publishing house in San Francisco uh, called Chronicle Books. Uh, they do a lot of kind of cookbooks and, and picture books and craft books and coffee table books. books, coffee table books <laughs> <laughs> about coffee tables. It's a uh, go. Uh, a lot of beautiful books you'd see at like the MoMA, the MoMA design store or, uh, or urban outfitters or something like that. So I met with them and I met with an editor who was just a friend of a friend. She didn't really know me, but she's like, Hey, this is a great idea. You know, I think you're onto something here. This generational piece is important. I like your positive outlook on things. And she gave me some frank advice. This is what she said. She said, you're a talented writer, smiley, but you're just not qualified enough to get a book deal. Um, and I thought it was really poignant and she was correct, <laughs> you know, 
Um, this was 2013 at the time when I met with her. You know, you my need, blog. You need those people in your life. Totally. Especially because often, you know, like sometimes good friends enable each other by telling them what they want to hear as opposed to what they need to hear. Exactly. And that's why it's almost important to have these kind of, uh, you know, not close friends, but advisors and mentors and people that just can kind of give you real advice. So she gave me the real advice that, Hey, you're not that ready, right? Your blog is interesting. It's good. You, you, you can write, you clearly have some skills. Um, this is a good idea, but you're just not at that level. Uh, to get a book deal. And I think that level means a certain level of talent and also a certain demonstration of the fact that you've done it, that you have experience and expertise in the space. That's, that's why people get book deals or, 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 uh, or record deals, right? That they can do it. They've shown that they can fill a room and yeah. people like what they have to say. You, you essentially were like a football player undrafted free agent who gets on the practice squad and is trying to figure out how to get onto the actual freaking team <laughs> off the practice exactly. squad. Yeah. I don't even know if I was even on the practice squad at that point. I was on the kind of the, 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 the night league, <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> right. the, Sunday, the Sunday league where like a couple kids from the team eventually make it yeah. uh, to, to the practice squad, the lingerie football league or whatever it's called. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> um, so at that point I had two, you know, two decisions, right? This, this editor at a, at a small but very successful publishing house in San Francisco that I really respect says, okay, you're not qualified. So I can either, one, quit, basically say, okay, she said I wasn't qualified. This writing thing's not for me. This isn't going to work out. I should get a real job. You know, I gave it a shot. Hey, I wrote some blog posts. I can do the blog on the side. The hell with it. Let me get a job at Google or whatever. <laughs> uh, or option B, which is the option I pursued, which was, okay, she told me I wasn't ready. I need to put more time into this. Uh, and, and, you know, she didn't just tell me I wasn't ready. She said, hey, I think, you know, self-publishing would be a great avenue for you. Get this out there. Write it. You know, maybe do a crowdfunding campaign to kind of build a community. And that's what I ended up doing. So I, I launched this uh, crowdfunding campaign in the summer of, uh, two, of 2013 on my 30th birthday. Um, I knew that if I launched the campaign on my 30th birthday, a lot of people would be on my Facebook page so they would see it. Uh, and and the, the campaign was for this idea of a book called The Quarter Life Breakthrough, uh, an optimistic, uplifting guide for 20-somethings mm. and 30-somethings to find meaningful work. You know, this idea that we have all these negative messages coming at us in the media. We know that we have a lot of student debt as a generation, which is true. We know that there's a lot of unemployment, the jobs crisis, the recession. Uh, this is all stuff that if, if you are between the ages of, of 20 and 30, you know. <laughs> and yet there's not that many message about messages around how to actually go out and do something that you want to do with your life or actually how to make a living, pay the bills, pay rent, and be happy and give back and make a positive impact in your community. So, you know, I, I set out this campaign and I, I didn't even have an introduction. I had a rough table of contents. I had, you know, a couple paragraphs I had written as a sample, but I didn't have the book. Mm -hmm. uh, so I put this out there and, you know, people, people were really supportive and a lot of strangers were supporting the campaign. So the campaign re raised almost $13,000 mm. uh, from 500 people in 40 countries. Mm. And this was as, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo are, are the two 
you know, were, were the two large crowdfunding campaigns, uh, per, excuse me, crowdfunding platforms, and they were kind of just getting off the ground at this point. If I can just jump uh, in real quick, because sure. I, I just want to start seeding and teasing other stuff that we're going to talk about, about your career and, and everything that surrounds this, um, which you have a really interesting story about why you were not able to use Kickstarter, and that will, we'll use that as a tease for, for talking about the self-help industry later, if, if you're cool telling that little story. Oh, definitely. You want me to tell that now? Yeah, just 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 tell it now, and then we'll 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 circle back to the self help industry later. Sure. Um, so I was all I was really excited when I when I lo- decided to launch a crowdfunding campaign to use Kickstarter. I had followed a lot of Kickstarter campaigns. I had supported a lot of people on Kickstarter. I knew that it was kind of the place to be if you were a creative, especially an artist. I you know Zach Braff had done a campaign on Kickstarter for one of his the film he made after Garden State. Um, and you know, it's just kind of a, the, the platform that seemed to align most with me and my community. So I submitted the campaign to Kickstarter. I was all set to launch. This is the, the day or something before my 30th birthday. Right. Um, so I was all set to go. And then I get an email from Kickstarter in my inbox and I assume, okay, great. This is the, the email that says you're good to go Uh-oh. You can launch the campaign, press go. And it says, hi, Adam Smiley Kozwalski. Uh, Kickstarter has denied your your campaign. Oh, um, you're no, you you can't you can't use this platform. And I was like, "What? This must be some kind of joke, or maybe I forgot which, to fill out a which, form." Really quickly, I had never heard of that even happening before. You, that happened to you, and you told me the story. Go ahead. Yeah, and you know, you just assume that they pretty much take any any campaign. You know, I mean, unless it's like uh, porn, you know, unless it's porn or, or yeah. something illegal or something that's completely sketchy. But they basically said that they had a rule that they didn't take any self-help projects, Mm. any self-help or advice projects, whether they were books or games or T-shirts or whatever, because they had a project a couple months earlier that someone had run on there that was kind of some sort of a pickup guide for guys to pick up women that was really offensive and and accused of being rapey and and really a not okay thing, and they didn't catch it. So they hadn't taken it down, and this campaign was raising thousands and thousands of dollars until right. a lot of groups right. uh, were like, "Hey, this is really offensive. You got to take this down." And they 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 couldn't at that point legally take the money back from this asshole because you know they they it didn't in their terms of service they didn't have any legal recourse to do so. Yeah, it wasn't so, it was it wasn't criminal all the way, and they had a contract, so you had to fulfill it, right? Exactly. Basically, they didn't because they had put it up there, there was no way for them retroactively to to take it down. So then they kind of said from that point, "Hey, instead of instead of doing what I thought they should have done, which is due diligence on each project, hey, this is clearly this guy's trying to help people make a difference in the world. Right. This is an okay thing." Um, they decided to just have a blanket statement um, that I'm not sure they still have. That might have been a temporary fix. But at any rate, at that point, there was nothing I could do. And it's a day before my 30th birthday, and I'm freaking out because I know I want to launch this thing. Uh, I want to get the, the, the traffic for my for my birthday. And I there's knew that no that way you could have known about that in advance also. No I mean, that's way. just shit luck, yeah. yeah. So it was shit luck, so I'm scrambling. And then, you know, I, I had a buddy at the time that worked at Indiegogo, which was smaller uh, it was, it was actually, they started after Kickstarter and they were just kind of catching up. I think now Indiegogo might actually have more users just because it's a much more global platform. I mean, I don't know if this is just confirmation bias, but I had never heard of it before you, and now I see it all the time. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Now it's really popular and it's a lot more popular among people doing kind of nonprofit or social impact, uh, campaigns as well. 
So I, so I basically talked to my buddy and he said, yeah, go for it. It's pretty easy to use. You can set up the campaign in a day. So I took, you know, I had all the copy written and the video. Uh, so I basically took all the copy from the Kickstarter page, put it onto the Indiegogo page, had my video editor edit out when I say support my Kickstarter campaign to say just support my campaign because I, you know, didn't have time to record new audio, but she just kind of edited out that line. Yep. We took out Kickstarter from the, the end of the video, from the slide at the end of the video, and I still was able to launch on my 30th birthday. Did, and it did, all, she, did she use the little, like, whooshing sound when it's, like, explicit lyrics <laughs> on the radio? Like, yeah, yeah. mother... Yeah, yeah, mother... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, by the way, by the way, out. random fun fact, I want to throw in some random fun facts during this podcast. To get a new copy of Smiley's first book on Amazon, you have to pay two hundred and twenty dollars and fourteen cents. <laughs> <laughs> that is the you the uh I know, I've been meaning to post on Facebook being like, Don't buy buyer beware. Like uh, you know, like basically even, what happens is uh, well let, let me get to it. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I sorry. Oh uh, yeah, I'm looking on Amazon ahead. now. It costs fifty three eighty five. And that is not from me, just so everyone knows. That's yep. from some schmuck who right. basically what happens is that book's discontinued. But you can never take down an existing product on Amazon uh, because people can buy used copies. So there's no way for me to stop someone who bought the book in Colorado from reselling it for whatever they want. I mean, I buy used copies of books all the time on Amazon, but they're Correct. they're almost always <laughs> commercial writers, and I'm right. not willing to pay fourteen dollars for a paperback. You know, right. you know, I read a lot of like heady sci-fi and stuff like that. You know, those those books you can get for four bucks used, and, and you save a tree. You know, you can't hate totally with it. I'm sorry, man, I interrupted you. I, I just saw, happened to glance at that. It, I mean, it's like it's like a diamond ring i mean it's so expensive you can't even believe it you know it's, yeah. it's, it's highly in demand so uh, so anyways anyways so, so crowdfunding campaign yes. was great. i uh i got the money i needed to invest in this project and i think that the the lesson from an entrepreneurship standpoint is you know you put yourself out there you start to build this community you realize other people are excited about something and i think you probably uh, kind of felt this in, in, in recent months with Bizzlecast. But, you know, when you first start something, you're doing it because you're interested in it, you're passionate about it. I had something to say about this subject, right? I was going through my own quarter-life crisis. I wanted to share uh, what I learned. I was really kind of excited about the people I was meeting that were, were figuring out how to, to find work that actually makes them come alive and right. pays the bills. Yep. And then you start to realize that other people care about it. And that's pretty cool. Then you start to realize, huh, I'm onto something here. This is interesting. Where do I take this? And, you know, so I had this money from the campaign that I used to pay for a cover designer, an editor, uh, to put this thing together. And then I self-published the first edition of the book in the spring of 2014. And, you know, it really took off and, and, and people were buying it. And I, and I did my own book tour. So, you know, some lessons in kind of self-publishing. You know, I didn't wait for, you know, Barnes and Nobles to have me come speak or, to, you know, to get on the main stage of TED or, you know, to have Simon and Schuster send me a letter. I basically, I spoke at my parents' temple. <laughs> you know, I spoke at, I went to Philly and, and spoke at Rembrandt's, the bar in your neighborhood, yep. right? Yep. Uh, which all you really need is a room full of people. And I, you know, printed the books. I was, you know, carrying around books on the, on the subway in New York City, on the T in Boston, um, on the Metro in DC, um, on the BART in San Francisco. And I was selling, selling, you know, selling books. Like people sell CDs at a show, right? 
Absolutely. carrying them around. Not I didn't have anyone, you know, helping me out. I just brought the books around selling them. So this uh, has been this has been a two year process. And part correct. of what's great is you weren't just selling books and you're not continue to not just sell books, but to to speak and, and to run uh, camps um, uh, and things completely connected um, to, to what you're writing about and what your ideology is and, and is all about, if you want to call it an ideology. Um, l- let me ask you this, and this will be a good way to transition into some of your uh, other uh, professional activities. Uh, like, um, you know, we were talking before the podcast, you know, the Bizzlecast, which has been on for, I don't know, 14, 15 months, just hit 7,500 uh, listens, which is good. The more important thing is that I'm getting more and more listens per month, which means I'm trending upward. Obviously, getting 7,500 podcast listens is, you know, not nearly as impressive as selling 10,000 books. But the, the connection I'm trying to make is you must have hit some sort of critical mass at some point. Like, when did you feel like, I mean, w- let's put it this way. When did the, when did the possibility of selling 10,000 books either happen or, or happen in your perception? Yeah, and I, I think this is around the time um, in late 2014 when I started to think about, you know, turning this into a, a more formal uh, endeavor and, and project and, and a published book. So it was around that time when, you know, this is, this is the thing I don't think a lot of people understand is that it wasn't, it, I didn't sell those books overnight. You know, when you self-publish a book, you don't get the, the benefit of being featured in the New York Times. You're not on the, in bookstores, so people don't see the book, yep. right? It's word of mouth, right? So it was a slow right. burn. Right. And I think that that's the real important thing. I think those books, you know, if you just take the first month or two sales, maybe mm. a thousand or two maybe a couple thousand books, which is really great. I mean, most books don't sell, you know, I think the statistic is most books don't sell a uh, hundred copies, let alone a thousand copies. I no. think that people say that if you can sell a thousand copies, that's, that's actually pretty respectable because you're clearly be, going beyond your friends and family who are buying the book to be nice. Right. 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 Totally. So, so, you know, same thing with probably a podcast. If you're, if you're, if you're only reaching a couple hundred uh, downloads, you know, your friends are listening, but you're not getting to, to strangers. You're not getting to people that don't know who you are. So that, that, so the threshold was kind of in late 2014. And around that time I reached back out to that editor, you know, I had started to kind of get some press on my own and I really, I, I was really building it up, building my speaking career up. Right. Um, and I think that that for me was the, the silver lining that actually kind of helped me break through. Uh, I think there are a couple factors. One is I really hit on something where there was a big audience. Millennials in the workplace, this is the largest generation. In 10 years, millennials will make up 75% of the workforce. So I was speaking to and speaking about a very popular subject and a large demographic. And, so and a lot of I times could, people... Yeah. yeah no, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Finish. So a lot of times people are concerned that it doesn't sell, but they're writing about something that is just not that interesting to a large number of people. Right, it's a very small subset of the population that really cares about, you know, how to make your own kombucha set, which is great. But like, that's don't expect it to sell tons of tons of copies, right? Well, and just to lead from that, what your success has proven is that a millennials do read. Like in general, you know, the, this accusation that younger people don't read is completely not true. It's actually older people who don't read. Um, from in my experience, uh, just read in general, but also the fact that you sold slightly more hard copies than digital copies with the millennial generation also shows that people still love physical books. 
Yes. Especially a physical book that is kind of a, a journey and a, a journey in self-reflection and almost kind of a something you would you would want to hold and and uh, and share i mean say what share. you will about the self-help industry but or the tenets of national socialism right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry no donnie these men are cowards <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, by the way, uh, I, I've listened to Jeff Bridges interviewed on the Nerdist podcast. He comes on regularly. He is the dude. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I gotta listen to that. Yeah, but um, um, but uh, but um, shit. What were you just talking about? Millennials reading books. Um, yeah. Oh 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 oh, oh 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 oh. So if you expand self help books. It, as I do in my mind, to include like the Tao Te Ching, you know, like philosophical texts, but that are for the mainstream a little bit, you know, like sort of like your work, you know, like your work is just as much philosophical as, as self helpy or whatever. We'll get back to that. Point being, those are the kind of books people do pass around and share and stuff like that, you know. Oh, totally. this book changed my life. And even though. You know, you might be getting slightly fewer sales because people are passing around the book or people buy a used copy. In the end, that really helps you, even if you, you know, losing a couple dollars here and there just from the word of mouth, right? I mean, that's really the most, and this is coming from my music business days. Sometimes you have to accept, um, you know, losses, you know, short term losses for long term gains, if that makes yes. sense. Yes. Oh, totally. And I think that, you know, when I was getting this book off the ground and, and in 2013, 2014, when I was writing it, you know, I was doing some part-time jobs to get by, to pay the bills. I was dipping into savings that I had very intentionally saved up from DC. Uh, you know, I was making <laughs> not what I would advise any young person, at, you know, not a real annual salary. Um, but you know, it paid off in the end. Um, because, you know, now I, now I have a pretty fruitful business around writing and speaking, but you kind of had to put in those, you know, year or two of, of not making any money at all, really, uh, in order to do so. Uh, so it was around that time that I, I reached back out to that editor. She had left the company, uh, publishing company she was at. She was doing some other things. Um, but she was like, hey, like, I, you know, I sent her a copy of the paperback. I sent her the link to about, at the time, there were about 50 five-star Amazon reviews, I think. Uh, and, and, and a link and a couple links to some, some blogs and, and, you know, blogs and podcasts I had been on and some small press. And she was really impressed. And she said, Hey, this is really good. You know, I told, I recommended you do crowdfunding. I recommended you self publish. And I was not expecting this, right. I didn't, you know, cause I spent a year on the project. I spent money. I, I really put a lot of time and energy and resources into this project and it showed, Right. So a lot of times people work on a project and they kind of say, uh, okay, here's my business card and, you know, or here's a website and I put, I put my, my soul into a book. So the book was my business card and, and, you know, I had this product to really show her and say, Hey, people care about this. People are really excited about this. Check it out. And she said, Hey, um, I don't think this is the right fit for Chronicle because, you know, this is just not the type of book they do. They do much more graphic design books. But you should talk to my friend, Lindsay, who's a literary agent in New York. Uh, she works with a lot of young emerging authors. She might be interested in, 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 in representing you. So she basically, this editor who had originally told me I wasn't ready, remember, this is the same person that told me, hey, you're not ready for a book deal. She was the one that got me that hookup, you know, and 
and anyone that's a in in a, a musician an artist uh, a writer knows that you know at some point if you you got to get representation or you got to get connected to the the person that's in the industry and this this person was my was my connect and and Lindsay uh, ended up being, uh, we got on the phone and we, I talked, told her not just about the quarter life breakthrough, but my work and what I was really passionate about. Can I jump and in real quick? Yeah. And this is just, to, I, I want to give context to everything you're talking about. All these people and these organizations, you are one of the best networkers I've ever met in my life. And you continue, I mean, you were already a great network before you, you had a heavy, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, presence. But your Facebook presence is, is ridiculous, and you have a whole audience now. And so you have hundreds of people looking at your posts, and you just keep meeting new people and getting in, interviewed by um, uh, you know, alternative sites as well as more mainstream sites. Um, you just have an incredible network of, of friends and professional contacts and so forth. You know, I, I know, you know DC was brutal for you, and, and, you, were, and you were miserable at, at a lot of times with your job and, and just you know, living there and, and so forth. But I have to think... Um, it, you know, in addition to you just being a very so- social, hyper-social guy, you must have met some great contacts in, in D.C. that that both inspired the book and, and were in the book. Sure. I mean, you know... I guess I'm know. just asking about, like, you know, how you've developed your networking skills over the last sort of five to seven years to where, you know, you have this amazing network. So you can take that in any direction you want. Yeah, I mean, you know, l- let me uh, let me let me finish on the the Lindsay on on my agent story, and then I'll kind of use that as a segue into networking. Beautiful. But Beautiful. Um, you know, it, that example of kind of a contact that you have. I just had a coffee with this woman who's an editor. She gave me some advice. We met for thirty five minutes or something, and I leveraged that relationship a year later into meeting the person that would become my agent. Right. Mm-hmm. So the example of every person you meet and, and understanding that relationships are important and you build them over time and you can't expect someone to help you and give you the world overnight. You have to build that and earn people's trust and, and, and prove yourself. And, you know, I got on the phone with Lindsay and she was really excited about, you know, not just the book, but my mission to empower this generation and, and a real positive outlook. And she was really excited that I was, you know, not just interested in this one project and this one book I had already kind of started, but actually, you know, a series of books and, and, and kind of continuing to speak and kind of, you know, myself as a platform and, and really getting excited about what we would do together in the future. You know, because she said, yeah, you're, you're, you're just getting going. You're, you're not as established as most authors I would sign, but I like where you're going and I want to be part of right. kind of the smiley business and smiley of the future. And so she agreed to represent me and, and we, we basically got a, a book deal for a, for a second version of the quarter life breakthrough. So we, we pitched a wide array of things, you know, maybe even taking the first book and making it more visual, um, taking the first book and improving upon it. And, and people were really excited about the kind of track record with the self publishing and using the same title. Um, you know, we explored the possibility of doing some stuff with the, with the new title, but we just kind of all, we just felt that the, the current title was so good. And we added a subtitle to the second version, which is invent your own path, find meaningful work and build a life that matters. And, uh, and then, yeah, and then, you know, that brings us to, uh, so I basically signed with Lindsay in the end of 2014, early 2015, we got the book deal you know, five, six months later yep. in 2015. 
and then the book comes out in October so of, of 2016. So it's a long process. You know, from that first coffee date with the editor in 2013, the book will come out now three years, more than three years later. Um, so for anyone out there, do not, do not be discouraged if it takes a long time. And, and you made the point about networking. I think that it's, you know, a lot of people in DC were part of this. They, they, they were part of the story. They, they were relationships that are really important to me. Um, I started meeting people even when I was at my old job in DC at a program called starting block, which is a fellowship program that kind of inspired me to take the leap and meet kind of social entrepreneurs and young people that were really hustling and doing some pretty impressive things in the world to kind of say, okay, I may be 28. I'm kind of old, but I'm not over the hill yet. You know, I still got this. I, I got to take advantage of, uh, I, I got to go for it. I got to, I got to live my life and, and take risks and, and do something. And it's not too late. Um, cause I think it's, you know, you, most, some people treat their network as kind of transactional, you know, happy hour right. business card exchange. Yeah. But I try to treat my network as, you know, food for thought and, and, and people that are in, as, as a community, as yeah. people that I care about, as people that are uh, not just friends, but you know, we're holding each other accountable in the, in the quest to go after our dreams, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was going to introduce the, the, the networking question. I want to get back to that. I, I really want to get into sort of the nitty-gritty of, you know, some tips you have for people. And this will tie into to your speaking engagements and, and your camps and, and conferences and so forth. The nitty-gritty of how, of how to network. It's a lot it, – it's more than just being a sociable person, you know. There are a lot of sociable people that aren't good networkers. And there are some people who are, you know, a little bit more loners, uh, who like myself, who are good social networkers. Um and uh you know so so it's an interesting skill set if you don't mind the sidebar a second here um yeah. to talk uh, some some philosophical uh, stuff so you know one of the key you, you have a lot of sort of key words and key terms um but none of them are pretentious and <laughs> and, they, and they all make sense um but i think you probably agree that one of the the, the most key terms is meaningful work right Sure. And you talk about how work is different than career, is different than job, right? Um, but my question to you would be, so you were doing meaningful work at the Peace Corps, even though you were miserable there. Sure, definitely. So uh, to, it seems to me well, – wait, hold on. Let me just put my, my, my yeah. theory forward. It seems to me there's at least two aspects to meaningful work. And you, you can stop me if I'm wrong or add or subtract or whatever. One is – the sort of obvious one of doing good in the world, you know, of, of can, meaning if, if all things are equal, if the money is the same, the hours are the same, if all things being are equal in an idealized environment, take the job where you're making positive change as opposed to being neutral or hurting the world, right? That, that, that's, that's obvious. But the second one is, is that it's meaningful to you, the problem with the Peace Corps wasn't that you thought you weren't doing important work. It's that the work itself is just not your thing, the way it was structured, right? That's, that's right. So my question is, are these things equal? Is one more important than the other? Are there other aspects besides these two to meaningful work? Go ahead. Right. Great question and great point. And I think that you're spot on. Obviously, the Peace Corps' mission is to promote world peace and friendship. It's very meaningful work. They send volunteers to the developing world for two years. 
the administration is supporting these volunteers and doing their work. They're working on education projects, on, on technology, on empowering women. Uh, it's a very impressive and, and important organization in the world. Uh, and the work that I was doing is, was very meaningful. It just wasn't aligned with me personally, what I was really good at, what I wanted to be doing. Um, and so the definition that I kind of put forth in the book, and again, I think it's less of a definition because you can't define something like meaning or happiness. You know, these are very um, vague at best concepts, right? They're mercurial. You can't, you can't put a definition on, on something. It's a, it's a philosophical thing to say, I, I found happiness, right? Uh, it, it's, it's just you have it or you don't. And, and you to put inputs into it. And, you know, we can talk about the science of, of brain, uh, of what, the brain thinks is meaningful or happy, but right. you know, I think it's different for everyone. Everyone's coming from different circumstances. There's a lot of research that shows that actually some of the most happy people in the world are living on, you know, $2 a day just because of, you know, when your expectations are lower, you are less, you, you give a shit less about, you know, a lot of these things that, you know, the West and, and the developed society cares about. Well, well I, um, just really quickly, but that also takes into account communal societies where you're getting psycho sure. psychological support in ways that we don't. Correct. Right. And you're fed, you're t you, you might be, you might be making your, your income is completely, is, is very little, but you have uh, a doctor and, and the village is taking care of you and yep. your family is, you There's know, no orphans, you know, correct, in a village yeah. you'll be taken care of. Yep. Right. Um, so the framework that I use in the book is um, that meaningful work provides personal meaning, reflecting who you are and what your interests are, allows you to share your gifts to help others, provides a community of believers that will support your dreams and is financially viable given your desired lifestyle. So there's kind of a, uh, you know, six main pieces there, you know, reflects who you are, reflects your interests, allows you to share your gifts, uh, allows you to kind of help others make the impact you want to make, provides a community, and is financially viable. Um, so for that piece of the, the example you gave, it's definitely was making an impact. Uh, the book work at the, my work at the Peace Corps was definitely making an impact, definitely financially viable. Um, but I think it didn't quite reflect my own interests and allow me to share my own gifts. Can I challenge that theory? Sure. I'm going to challenge the theory on a couple, a couple, um, uh, different angles and, you know, and, and just to, to be clear, Bizzlecast audience, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a while. And that doesn't mean I disagree with what Smiley's saying. I'm just playing devil's advocate to expand our discussion and our understanding of these issues, because it seems to me that, if work is meaningful to you, it's it's subjective, but it's definitive. Meaning, it's like happiness. You know, if you say you feel happy and you think you feel happy, then you feel happy, right? It's subjective, but it's it's quantifiable. You know, just within the experience of the individual. But the the meaningfulness of how it affects and helps or doesn't help the world is highly subjective and really unquant sure. unquantifiable or less quantifiable. Meaning, who are you to tell someone that their work is not meaningful? Like, right. who, who's judging that what, you know, what some activists do, you know, is helping or not helping? I think we all know people who are activists because it helps their conscience and makes them feel less guilty, who may not be actually helping, 
um, in, in any sort of major way. This is sort of the whole working within the system versus outside the system. Um, something that you and I have disagreed on in the past, although I think we've sort of come, you know, closer to one another over the years since Wesleyan, where everyone was so radicalized and everyone called themselves an activist and it was questionable who was actually accomplishing anything, right? So, you know, like, what is the criteria for it being meaningful in the external, um, you know, extrinsic sense as opposed to the internal sense of that? Makes, yeah, if that I makes think sense. the internal clock here is much more what we're talking about. And I have a, I have a, a section in the introduction, a caveat section, actually, and it says all work can be meaningful. Um, and I actually even have this, a sentence here, which I'll read. Uh, Never, ever assume that your work is more meaningful than someone else's. Everyone is, everyone is different and all work can be meaningful. The challenge, the challenge is finding what's meaningful to you. Which is great. Just to make the Jewish connection, that's basically the golden rule of millennialism, (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, like, you know, treat uh, others and judge others as you would be judged, this kind of thing. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and I, I just think it's important. I think that this is not, uh, you know, a coming up with some sort of metric by which that says, you know, working for a charity is more meaningful than working at Google, which is more meaningful than being an auto mechanic, which is more meaningful than, you know, doing a podcast like I, that. I don't I'm not in the business of caring about that. I'm in the business of caring about helping individuals figure out what they care about. This is a great transition, if you don't mind. Um, So, man, I want to talk about your speaking, um, being a speaker, and going all around the country and even the world uh, to to speak about your ideas and your book and and your whole philosophy. Um, And, you know, you'll do everything from, you know, corporate... um, uh, uh, showcases to, you know, college kids or, you know, it just independent artists, like just all different kinds of people who are millennials in terms of their age, but are doing different things and whose, you know, definition of meaningful work might be different than yours or, or you know, or, or, or the same, but, you know, if that makes sense. Uh, what are sort of the the common things you found, whether it's a you know a, a sort of a, a rich corporate audience as opposed to just a bunch of like artistic unemployed or self employed kids? Are millennials? Let me put it this way: Do millennials share more uh, than not, or, or or it's really dependent upon the personality and, and who they're working for and and what they're doing? If that makes sense, like you're seeing a lot of similarities of millennials, to, regardless of their of their profession. Yeah. And I, I think it's, you know, for me, I have to, I have to always be conscious of the audience. You know, there's a difference between speaking to a room full of young professionals that are either, uh, underemployed, unemployed in transition, uh, trying to figure out what they want and kind of lost. Right. I kind of have a deli- different message for that group than a large company like Unilever, where I recently spoke in New York, that is, you know, all about kind of empowering, millennials in the workplace. So how do they empower their workforce, attract the top talent, and also market to this generation? So it's a different, it's related, but a different message. I mean, my message is still around meaning in this generation looking to make a difference and being very vocal about that and also really wanting, um, you know, the opportunity to think of their career in nonlinear terms and and this, this kind of rejection of a traditional corporate ladder which I think, which I think is, yeah, you know, is, is different from our parents' generation where, 
you know, somebody gets in a job, you know, one or two years out of college and they probably stay in that job for 10 or 20 or 30 years. Right. That's just no longer relevant uh, given, you know, globalization and rapid changes in technology. Right. So to, just to focus the question, how are how how is the response? How are you received in a corporate environment like Unilever versus, you know, doing an open forum in San Francisco and have a bunch of artists and and independent contractors and so forth uh, show up? I mean, have you been surprised at the corporate gigs in particular as to people's various responses? Yeah, I think that, I think that at first when I went into, you know, speaking more companies, I thought I was kind of going to be a, uh, people are going to think of me as kind of a rebel, right? Because I'm coming in, I'm younger. You know, who is this young guy, this millennial kind of, what? (laughs) Scruffy? scruffy. (laughs) Yeah, a little scruffy. You know, usually I shave before going to a private event, a company event. But to be honest, I've actually found that a lot of companies and and corporate corporate audiences and, and conferences are really excited about this message because they get it. They know it. They work with these people every day. A lot of these companies are filled with millennials, right? Some of them are being run by millennials, actually. Um, so they're on it, you know? So it's actually, at first, I kind of had the prejudice that, like, oh, I'm going to be an outcast. They're going to laugh at me. And I have had the experience of, you know, people tweeting, like, I'll, I'll look back on Twitter after a talk and, you know, people will say, like, oh, another millennial, like, millennial garbage or you know, this stuff applies not just to you, you, you know, we were talking about the same things in the, in the sixties and seventies, you don't know what you're talking about, which I find really interesting because I'm not just saying that it's millennials are awesome. Everyone else sucks. I'm saying that this is an important thing we all need to talk about. So I, I think, um, I actually have been, been, it's been intriguing to me that more people than you think are on board with this type, this subject, which is why I think I get brought to these audiences yeah. I'm not getting brought because I'm getting brought because people care about this and want to talk about it and they actually recognize it as as relevant and and true. So they're trying to find the people that can bring that message and I'm also a millennial. Uh So who's in the I'm room? A, like when you're at a corporate event, like who physically is yeah. it just millennials or do they have executives there? Like who's sitting in those rooms? Yeah, it, it, it obviously varies on the event, sure. but for instance, the Unilever event was, you know, some of their, some of their executives, uh, their executive team from all over the world. Um, but you know, that, that was a small event, but then I did a, another conference recently, uh, for a software company in Chicago. And that was, you know, 200 people, some executives, some customers, most people in the room over the age of 40 or 45. Hmm. Um, so what do you so say to really that? What, what do you say to a room of non millennials? The same thing I would say. You know, I might, I might, might, I might change some of my anecdotes so they're more relevant. And but, I but wait, more, let, me just inter- more, let me just interrupt. Yeah. Again, playing devil's advocate, I'm not, I'm not tr- truly challenging you. I'm just trying to, you know, take take different perspectives here. Which is, if you're if you're if you're working for a corporation, getting paid decently, maybe you're not thrilled with the job, but you've got two kids and you got to put them through college and so forth. It seems like the message of finding meaningful work could be difficult to wrap your arms around, you know, when you're headed towards middle age and have kids growing up and have to, you know what I mean? As opposed to being a 28 year old who's single and and has more flexibility about what where they're going with the future. I could be wrong. No, no, you're, I mean, I think, I think what you're saying is the message of quit your job is not 
a good one to go into an established company sure. with and tell sure. a workforce to you don't quit your job. You don't lead and with that's that. Not, you don't that's lead not with my that. message, but yeah. that isn't my message. I don't even tell young people to do that. I if know. you actually read my book, um, I'm telling people if they're if you're unhappy and depressed and you can't sleep at night and you hate yourself and you hate your life, yeah, you should probably quit your job if you can financially and figure out something out. But no, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about talking about people, whatever that means, finding more meaning for them. So if that means finding more meaning in your current job, if that means switching, if that means taking on a new project, if that means, you know, switching cities, whatever it is, um, that's, that's fine. And I, and I think that, look, there's, there's this kind of a, there was, I, I don't remember who said it. I'm not sure it's documented, but it's kind of like, Hey, if we give our employees this training about, you know, purpose and, and, and finding meaning in the workplace, um, what happens if they leave, you know, because they're unhappy? And the guy, the guy retorts like, well, what happens if we don't give the training and they stay? <laughs> Does that make sense? So they don't want to be there. They hate their life. They hate their job. They shouldn't be there. <laughs> Does that make sense? So it's like obviously some people that are some people that are financially unable to to change their jobs or have two kids and are, are paying off debt. Obviously, these are different circumstances for everyone. No two people are the same. But the point being, if I talk about meaningful work and a light bulb goes off in someone's head that's in the audience and says, "My job is not meaningful. I don't like what I do, and I don't like the company that I work at, and I don't like what the hell we're selling." Well, that's important. Uh, something to consider, they probably should find something else to do with their days. Uh, and if I'm the first person that has to tell them that, great. Um, and if their boss thinks otherwise, their boss is wrong because that person is clearly not engaged and is not doing very well for themselves or the company or their bottom line. They should be doing something else with their life. Okay, but, so, but, but, but hold on, hold on. But you specifically arrived to this point because you did hate your job. and It was miserable to the point that it was literally making you sick and in pain. And, you know, so obviously you don't lead with quit your job when you do these speeches. That is what led you here. So if, you know, let's, if you've got three categories, you have people who are totally miserable with their jobs, right? That's an easy sell. And then you have people who are really happy with their jobs. Well, you don't have to do much selling. What about that group in the middle? It's very subtle of people who might not be thrilled with their jobs or not like everything about it, or it might not be contributing to the world as much as they want, but they feel loyalty to their company or their organization. How do you deal with that group? Because I think what's been so successful about both your book and your message is uh, dealing with and and speaking to that group, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that that's the sweet spot of, you know, someone, I think that, I think that that group is understanding that maybe they're not going to be in this job forever. So how do they make the time that they're there more meaningful, you know, by, by figuring out, you know, skills they want to build projects, they want to work on people, they want to meet conferences, they want to go to, uh, projects and, you know, things that they really care about while they're there and what they might do next. So it's actually kind of for them, it's like a restructuring of how they approach their career, uh, short term and long term. And, you know, again, like that's the kind of group that I'm, you know, addressing as um, how do you find more meaning in your life? We're like, for, I think like this idea, like that finding perfection is not what it's about. And I have a whole, you know, my book, uh, you know, is really, especially the new edition, the second edition is really um, 
compared to the, some of the other self-help stuff that's out there, really has a lot more restraint. I am not telling people to quit. There's a lot of books that basically the, the, the thesis is quit your job, you know, do what you love, full stop. You know, I think that's bullshit. I think that's bad career advice. Because what if, what if do what you love is like do yoga all day long? Like that's not a good way to make a living, right? So I'm, I'm yeah. trying to give much more nuanced, real talk career advice. And, you know, basically, you know, telling my story of, of being unhappy at work and then finding something different, telling the stories of other people that are figuring it out, I think is empowering to people and helps the light bulbs go off. Yep. So for, for them, that's either, hey, this isn't working. I need to do something else. Hey, this isn't perfect, but there's aspects of it that I like. Let me hone in on those aspects. This is a great opportunity. This is what I want to get out of this, out of this. And then, hey, what might I want to do? Not just next, but as, as a whole for my life. Like what might be the thing that I say, this is the, the legacy I want to leave behind. This is what I want to be remembered for. This is the, the kind of overall trajectory I want my career to take. I mean, just to follow up on that, you know, what is the first rule of writing? Is show, don't tell, right? And so many self-help books are tell and not show. And that's why I always talk about, for me, you know, the best, um, for me, the best uh, philosophy uh, you know, it is like self-help for me. And I think your work is very philosophical because it, it presents possibilities. It, it, it expands the, the realm of possibilities. Whereas I think a lot of self-help books, um, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of restrict possibilities by saying this is the way to do this or this is how this is supposed to be done or thought about or felt. Right? Am I on? Am, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you are, you know one of the the more the, mo- the more well-read folks i know on on all things philosophy and um one of the things that i'm trying to do here is create is to make this stuff relevant right and i think you know the way that you do that is is with stories and and examples and showing kind of like you said showing not telling and showing examples of people that are doing this showing examples of people who have kind of failed or the messiness of it right because it shows that there's no right answer and it show, you know, versus this kind of this regurgitation self-help shit, which is just, here's what to do. Here's what to do. Here's five steps. Here's 10 steps. Follow me, follow me, follow me. And it's like, okay, great. You know, it's just not that empowering. It's right. Kind of, it just becomes like you're getting hit over the head with a, you know, yep. uh, like a preacher or something like nobody wants that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a lot of the, you know, in the bigger picture, what a lot of these these books and these messages mi- uh, miss um, is you know the importance of abstract thinking when dealing with these things. You can't only deal in the concrete. You need to expand your mind, you know. And, and then, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. You, you know, r- rather than just telling someone what what they should do, what you think they should do, how rewarding is it when someone reads your book? And comes to their completely own conclusions and tells you, you know, how important it was, you know, for them to come to it themselves, but that your book was sort of like, your book is like a tool, right? It's not like a tell all. It's like, this is a tool to help you reach a better place in your life, right? Um, And so, um, uh, so you you do lots of speaking events, um, talking about this stuff. I, I assume your just comfort with speaking and, you know, maybe speaking a little bit more off the cuff and just being, you know, just being relaxed has improved over the last couple of years. Yes. 
Um, you know, when I do a, co- a corporate keynote, it's usually pretty rehearsed and it's stuff I, it's material that I practice and I'll bring in new things. But, you know, when I do a, a, a corporate keynote, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing material that I'm familiar with. And I think that that's important. I think for, for when you're doing paid corporate speaking, people are expecting you to do material that you've researched, you've tested that works. Um, one of the things that I've explored recently is, uh, that I love to do is just kind of more interview type speaking and panels because that's where the, the juicy stuff really comes out, you know, and you get to kind of reflect on your experience and just say things off the cuff and, mm. and go with it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think um, one of the things that I've realized, it's interesting because a lot of times people, you know, they'll see my slides or they'll see me post about a speaking gig and they say, hey, like, I saw that you use the same slide for the University of Akron and that other conference, like, you know, like, it seems like you should be doing a new talk every time. Um, <laughs> That's like telling then, a stand-up comedian to do new material on every exactly. stop on the tour. It's and impossible. Like, oh, well, um, that's nice. Thank you for commenting. And you clearly don't know anything about the paid speaking business because I talk to these speakers and I see them 10, 15, 20 years in the game doing the same exact talk Almost every time. I mean, dude, Jerry Seinfeld, arguably the greatest stand-up comedian ever, has been using some of the same material for 30 years. Correct, because it works. I mean, if Paul McCartney plays the same songs <laughs> every show he's ever done for 20, 30 years. Don't and die, I mean, I, don't die, I, don't die, don't die. I mean, you know, and that doesn't mean they don't create new music. You know, Jerry's done multiple specials. I mean, he's got all the, you know, the comedians in Cars Getting Coffee is like one of the great examples of how do you follow something like Seinfeld with something that's creative and interesting, it's brilliant. It's genius. And like, he's into it and you can tell it's fresh for him and awesome, Yep, which is so cool. Uh, because he gets to like hang out with his buddies and, and tell jokes and just be real and off the cuff. But the point is that you become really good at something by practicing and practicing your material. And I think that people in, in the, in the, in the court, on the speaking circuit, I've realized that a lot of these, these people have, one to two, maybe three keynotes, depending on how long they, they've been doing it. And they, they, they switch up a few things. They add new studies, they add material, but they stick to what they know works. And I, uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I think that, you know, if I can add a, a new keynote every two years, I think that that's a, that's a worthwhile goal. It's like, you don't write a book in, in a month. You don't prepare a new talk every time you give a talk. So totally. I, I think the, the, uh, if I can make a musical comparison, um, so you know how some bands, rock bands, they'll play basically the same set every night and some don't. Um, I, and the one extreme you have sort of the older guys like the Rolling Stones and the who, who are just old. And so they play the same set on most nights and that totally makes sense. They've been doing this for 50 years, you know, on the other side, you've got Fish, who's so out there that if you're not a Fish fan, it's kind of hard to get into. There's like no consistency. That's part of what's great, but frustrating about them. I think the perfect is is Pearl Jam. Have you ever seen mm. Pearl Jam live? I've never seen Pearl Jam live so on what's, my list. What's great about Pearl Jam is that they have like a few hundred songs that they can choose from, not just from their own catalog, but songs by like The Who and Jimmy and Zeppelin that they cover, you know? 
But if you look at their set lists, they do change most nights. Now, they'll play 60% of the same songs, sure, but they're in different their, orders. They play the, the hits. But, but they'll do medleys, you know? Like, it's not just about which songs you play. It's like, we're going to do order. three songs without stopping, and we're going to, you know, change the order for this one. And you're still going to get Black, and you're still going to get Jeremy, and you're still going to get Elderly Woman, but you're also going to get a lot of, like, punky Pearl Jam songs that you didn't even know existed. Um, right. And I think they strike that perfect balance. Balance. Um, it, 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 just as a comparison, as you know, as a speaker, you've got the hits, right? You've got the greatest hits, and then you've got new material you're working on each time, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that I'm, you know, struggle. That this is the big challenge for me now, and uh, you know, is how do you take, how do you keep being creative while knowing that you've done something that's successful and making and, and wanting to make a living from it and building it. But how do you stay innovative and creative and excited about your work? Right. Right. All kind of being true to the base and the thing that kind of got you some success. So that's a big challenge from a creative standpoint, right? Because I know that I can probably sell, let's say five, 10, 15 talks next year on millennials in the workplace. But I also know that if I do much more than that, I'll burn out and creatively get bored because I'm ready for some new challenges, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to entirely do something new or else I'll be, you know, it'll, it's, a, it's a little too risky, right? Mm-hmm. And both from a financial standpoint and a creative standpoint, but, you know, you got to put, you know, like, at, you got you to gotta go for it. You got to try new things and, and try new material and write something new and um, all right, man. Well, this is great stuff. Uh, you know, there's so much we could talk about. We're definitely going to talk more about the new book um, towards the final act. And I, I would love to hear some stories about camp. Now, I know what camp is. People might be wondering when we keep referencing, you know, camp for adults. You know, what the hell is camp for adults? So, well, maybe we'll end on that. But a topic that we've been teasing since the Vizzlecast began and I first interviewed you last year and that we talk about all the time is a, sort of a critique um, or just observations about the self-help industry. You must run across tons of people who are in the industry or at least in orbit around the industry um, and what that must be like in, in terms of the lifestyle, like people who are full-time speakers. You know, I, we talked about, I finally saw recently up in the air with uh, George Clooney and uh, Vera Farmiga and uh, my girlfriend, Anna Kendrick. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it is a really great movie. Um, I really enjoyed it. I n- knew I was probably going to. You're sort of the anti-Clooney. Um, to quote, to, to quote Michael, uh, to quote Michael Scott, uh, I don't hire, or I'm sorry, I don't fire, I hire and inspire, um, uh, yeah. you know, whereas Clooney's firing. Um, but, 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 but the real, you know, what, what the movie's ultimately about is his transient lifestyle. And, and when Which he, I identify with very much currently, to be honest, in a, in a time, my sometimes sad and uh, lonely, depressing way. Uh, I can talk about a little bit, but go ahead. Yeah, and just his obsession with miles, you know, getting miles. <laughs> but, you know, he's 20 plus years older than you, and he finally decides he wants to settle down. And he, you know, he realizes that, you know, n- n- no spoilers here. Uh, it, things are not as they appear to be. 
and he might be stuck. Uh, in, that's yeah, such a heartbreaking scene. It's so heartbreaking. Um, but um, but anyways, it made me think about the lifestyle. Uh, and, and what you were talking about before about, you know, if you're doing a lot of a speaking engagement, you're going to have to say a lot of the same stuff over and over and over again. So what is, are your general impressions of people who are, are in the self-help industry or identify as being in the self-help industry? I mean, is that even a term that people are using these days? Are people trying to cover up even if it is, you know, traditional self-help work? Like, just give us, give us some impressions, some observations in your time the last few years of the so-called self-help industry. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is still a term. I think that the branding of it is different. I think people are trying to repackage it with terms like life coach, or experiential community or transformational community um, or kind of uh, even even some networking stuff is kind of really self-help um, a lot of but it's it's more popular than ever and I and, it, and it's not surprising why it's popular um, you know I think social media is making people more and more depressed um, anxiety is you know if you look at you know studies of of, of of anxiety and, and people addicted to prescription pain medication for all the variety of different things. Um, I think that the data shows that we're at, you know, highest levels of, of, of all of that. Um, and I think that some of that has to do with technology making us more lonely and, and, and there's a lot of factors involved, sure. but, um, you know, I, I think that as an industry, it's ever more popular, but that doesn't mean that there's, um, you know, any quality assurance. <laughs> and, and I don't mean to say that like I have the answer and other people don't, but I just think that what, what people lack is a, is an authenticity and an honesty. And it's a lot of bullshit out there. And what happens is that you have this under the guise of self-help people trying to make people's lives better. Um, but no really, no real way to determine, you know, whether stuff's actually works. So a lot of times you'll see people in the space that are popular. So they have a big social media following or they have a lot of emails or, you know, they have a popular website and it's self-help, but it doesn't, you don't necessarily, just because someone is popular doesn't mean that their results are good. Does that make sense? So it doesn't mean that they, you know, actually are, are that their services work. And, you know, it's, it's, it's suspect because you have a lot of people giving advice and, you know, I, I, I wrote a blog post kind of called the problem with life coaches, which is kind of all about, um, and it's, it's really the problem it really should be retitled the problem with some life coaches, but you know, it just wasn't as good of a clickbait title. So I had to, uh, well, I think it's implied that you're not saying all, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Cause I have a lot of friends that are tremendous coaches, sure. um, that and I'm sure we know people that are tremendous coaches and they're certified and they have experience and they've done it and they they're they're really good at what they do. But you know, basically it was saying that there's a lot of people that, you know, are posting about how great their life is and equating that with, oh, I'm a great coach. Does that make sense? So it's it's kind of like, look at me, I'm traveling, look at me, right. um, I'm happy, I'm beautiful, I'm tan skinned. Um you know, I'm doing something interesting. Great. Awesome. That's cool. And that's kind of social media is designed for that. Now that's what we, our lives have become or, yeah. or running highlight reel or we're all kind of personal brands yeah. showing how dope our lives are. Yeah. Now that gets really problematic when it's like, 
you're getting someone's credit card for making their life better because then you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second here. Yep. That's a jump that we haven't really thought about. So I think it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's an interesting space to be in, being in this self-help space and being someone that um, is pretty intentional about what I say I can provide and what I can't provide, uh, intentional, just, and gives real advice. And it's quick to say, like, you shouldn't start a yoga studio in San Francisco because there's 500 of them and you're not even very good at yoga. <laughs> right. Or like, you don't know anything about business, so you probably shouldn't start a yoga studio. Right. Or if you really want to do that, you should study business first. <laughs> Or 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 op, or open a yoga studio in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, go back and to to make an up in the air reference to Omaha, yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> where there's probably less yoga studio. Uh, but like I don't, I think that a lot of times people are. Uh, it's it's a it's a shady space. It's a shady industry. Um, you know, I think of like you if you ever seen Little Miss Sunshine, like Greg Kinnear's character. Yep. Um, he's trying to get this kind of his, his nine step plan. And, you know, he's the, the movie's kind of making fun of his, his shtick as well. But it's, it's, it's a interesting, it's an interesting world. And it's, it's a world that I feel very conflicted about partaking in just because I think it's not genuine. And I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, I'm happy to, I, I, I feel fully, totally okay with charging $15 for a book that I know makes people's lives better. Uh, doesn't solve all their problems. Doesn't make them a million dollars. Doesn't, you know, but makes their lives a little bit better. Gives them um, resources, tools, questions, exercises to start thinking about what they want and how to get it. Um, but, you know, getting into the space I'm getting in with kind of charging a lot of people, charging money for workshops and all this stuff. And it starts to be a little bit, you know, I fully believe in what I'm doing, but I don't necessarily believe in the industry I'm attaching myself to. So it can be, it can be conflicting at times. I'm not going to lie. Like I know it's, it's a little bit, I'm not supposed to say that because I'm in the space, but, um, I believe it. I, 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 sometimes I'm like, this is weird. I, I, you know, I don't know if I, this industry is right for me right. because I'm just kind of an honest, I'm a real talk kind of guy mm -hmm. and it's not a real talk kind of industry. Yep. Yeah, it's a bunch. It's a bullshit industry. It's 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 a it's a real scammy, salesy industry. So, just a couple quick thoughts uh, response. Um, just one really quick a sidebar. We've talked about this, and and you briefly mentioned it uh, a minute or two ago about you know <laughs> people sort of bragging about their lives on Facebook. And, and the problem is, it's like every single post on Facebook is either how amazing their life is or how horrible the world is. You know, I mean, literally, that's everything. And if you, it, and I love our friends, and I love our extended network, and obviously we have a lot of friends that don't, you know. But if it's political, it's about how you know people are getting murdered and you know horrible things going on in foreign countries and all this stuff, or. Um, you know, or, or, oh my God, look at me on this beach or doing this or succeeding in that. And I love everything and I'm so happy. And, you know, you talked a couple of years ago about how you wanted to get off of Facebook for, for reasons like that. And I, I feel that way a lot. That's why I, I, you know, people always ask me like, why do you do and, and post so much nerd stuff? I'm like, just to have a third path. Like, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> why can't we just... The nerd path. The nerd path, yeah. Like, why can't we just That's enjoy good, movies? Good 
It's a good title for a book, by the way. The Nerd Path, yeah. It's true. Or The Nerd Way, which is very Taoist. That would be great, connecting nerd culture to Taoism. I've kind of been doing that implicitly. Um, but the point is, yeah, uh, when you talk about self-help speakers, or really any speakers, you know, like Clooney's whole what do you put in the bag speech and uh, up in the air, you know, is, um, I mean, <laughs> other than politics, is there any industry where charisma is more dangerous than the self-help industry? Yeah, totally. And and you you have amazing charisma, but the difference is you are what you see, what you get guy. I mean, who you are and what you say on that stage. You know, people might think in this podcast, oh, he's just sticking to the message. No, he really believes, you really believe this stuff and live by it, you know. But people can have charisma and, and not be that guy or that woman, right? Yeah, I think that there's like, and I feel this even when, like, let's say, uh, I felt this even like, let's say I meet a fan of the book or someone at a speaking engagement, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I feel this is like, they're like, oh my God, you wrote that book. And meanwhile, like I'm thinking in my head, like, man, like the tuna salad sandwich at the <laughs> place is 1325. And like, I gotta, you know, like I'm in my head is like rolling like the traditional, like my neurotic, like bullshit. And here I am, I have to like pretend to be some sort of guru because this person is like, oh my God, your book's amazing. You have all the answers. You're so smart. And I'm sitting there being like, God damn it. Like my, I, my socks have a hole. Scratching your, you know? your balls are itchy. Yeah, I got itchy balls. I like gotta, you know, get the baby powder. Like oh, yeah. I'm having chafing again. Gold like, bond, I'm, I'm baby. Running. Gold bond. <laughs> yeah, I'm on baby powder, Johnson and Johnson. Oh, yeah. You know, meaning, meaning, like this is what goes through my head, and this is who I am, and yet I've been like cast in this role of like, like, um, you know, people expecting me to know what to say, and. I will try to say something correct, but I'm not going to front and pretend to be one of these fucking gurus. Like, so I gave a, I gave a workshop at Esalen and I know you're an East coaster and you're like pretty removed from this space, oh, but Esalen, I know is, what Esalen is, Are you kidding Esalen me? is like a premier, at least woo woo self help center in the world, or at least in the United States. I don't know about the world, but Dude, um, you don't, you don't, you don't live at a yoga ashram and not find out about Esalen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Esalen is up there. It's like where all the top yoga teachers go, all the top, you know, philosophers, uh, philosophers, you know, it was big in the sixties among all, all the folks. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a big, it's the Shangri-La of headiness. I think it's fair it's to say. It's the Shangri-La of headiness. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yep. It's the Shangri-La of headiness. Mm-hmm. It's the Ted for people that, you know, let, you know, put essential oils on them right. and, and have a meditation practice, um, which is great. And there's amazing workshops there. It's the most beautiful place ever. It's in Big Sur, California, which is magical. There's natural hot springs. It's gorgeous. And some of the workshops incredible are incredible. The teachers are incredible. But there is definitely like, you know, there's still this kind of like, oh, all hail the teacher yep. mentality. And I'm like a 33-year-old. like it's Darwinism, you know, man. Fig- figuring out my shit. You know, like I wrote a book. The book's good. I like to write. I like to speak. I'm good at it. I love my life. That doesn't make me a guru. And I'll never play that. So, like, if people want someone who's real and honest, I'm all there. But, like, I will never pretend to be, like, one of these people, even if it costs me money. Like, I don't care. Um, And I, you know, I met some people there that are kind of like that, more like, yeah, like, you should come to my thing. And I figured this out. And, you know, this and that. I'm like, all right, leave me alone. You know? 
And I just, I don't have respect. I like, for me, it's a matter of honesty. It's a matter of honesty. And like, I meet people in the space of entrepreneurship, self-help, like people that are kind of movers and shakers. And if they, when I talk to them one-on-one are still giving me their shtick, they're not, I'm like, they're like, if they can't talk to me about their problems and challenges and things that are challenging for them and are that they like things they don't know, things they don't know that they're not good at, that they have trouble with. If they don't mention those in a conversation with me, then like the way I see it, like I don't respect them. <laughs> like if they can't be self-deprecating and real, like they lost me. So that's for me just who I am and that's who I'll be because that's those are the types of people I want to be friends right. with, people that want to talk about real shit. Like yeah. I don't want to hear about how great you are. Like I mean, the problem is, Smiley, like we'll get a little deep here for a couple minutes, is that as much as capitalism, or I shouldn't say capital, as, as much as the corporate welfare capitalism of our country and transnational corporations and so forth get in the way of your message, human nature and Darwinism get in the way way more. I mean, it's like yoga classes, how competitive they are, you know? I mean, the, the, the whole tenet of yoga is that it's about you and not other people. You know, and, and getting rid of the ego and not caring about that stuff. But you go to some yoga classes and, you know, like th- there's, you can just sense the competition of people, you know, showing off. And the, oh. and, and the teacher says, you know, this isn't a competition, but the way that they teach and talk it, is making it competitive. And then they're like, great job, you know, Karen. Right. Like, oh, nice, Karen. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, because she can do like the crazy cool headstand. Yeah. Like, give me a break. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually a little bit easier uh, as a guy with yoga <clears throat> because you're, you're expected to be able to do less for the most part. Um, and since yoga classes still are mostly female in my experience, and I usually do female teachers, I usually have female teachers rather than male teachers. I just prefer it's usually mostly women. And so it's I feel like there's more competition going on among the women subtly and silently, you know, and, and there's professional competition, but there's personal competition. It doesn't matter if it's Esalen or, you know, Unilever, there's still going to be competition in both cases. Right. And so, this goes back to my, you know, my Taoist thing, which is that, and, you know, you talk about meaningful work, but what you're really talking about is a meaningful life. You just happen to be focusing on the work side of things. But, you know, yeah, the, the, totally. But, but the, the easiest translation of, um, or interpretation of what's going on with Taoism is just like, look, if you go with the flow in a positive way, if you follow the Tao, you know, and, and don't step on other people's toes and aren't unnecessarily competitive or aggressive, you know, that's going to allow other people to do the same. But if you do the opposite of that, it's going to make it harder for other people to, you know, to, to, to follow the flow of the Tao. And so it's really complicated because it is so much more than the work that you do. It's how do you treat your, your, your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband and wife, children when you come home, Right. Like, right. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there are people who are saving the world during the day and are horrible parents at night. And then there are people who are, you know, working for, I don't know, Boeing or what, or, or, or Lockheed Martin or whatever, who are amazing parents. It, you know, I mean, the, the personal life side does count for something. It counts for a lot. And so, you know, I wonder if 
and again, this is going back a little bit to, to my critique of, you know, so-called activists from our college, Wesleyan, and just radical activists in general. And I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter stuff, because that's mainstream now and should be. And, you know, I'm obviously behind this stuff 100%. I'm talking about, you know, micro causes, as I call them, you know. Um, like, if, if you're feeling fulfilled, you know, and you're feeding a couple kids in some foreign country... Is that really so much more noble than trying to rise in the ranks of a company, but then using your power and influence to like, you know, do huge charitable projects the way Bill Gates has done, you know, since he's left Microsoft? Um, does that make sense? Like, and this again, sure. this is again the working within the system versus working without the system. I think you need both. You'd probably agree with that. But I, I do think I, I worry that kids, uh, I should say millennials, who come from similar backgrounds to us are are more likely to do work that's, you know, is doing some good and, and personally feels good, but isn't making any major systemic changes. Um, thoughts? Totally. I mean, I, one of the things I try to do specifically in the new version of the book is make it clear that you can make a great difference within a large company, specifically a company that doesn't on paper kind of scream social impact, right? So a large technology company, a large corporation that, you know, isn't, you know, isn't the Peace Corps, isn't kind of like saying, hey, we, you know, we help babies, you know, poor kids in Africa on their website, right? Um, And I think that that's true. And again, I think it's, I, I think the politics of trying to kind of say this is more impactful than this is just a futile exercise in ego, basically. Uh, and it's the wrong question. And the right question is to be kind of figuring out what you are in a unique position to be doing based on who you are, what you care about, what you're good at, what you, you know, um, and, and that's what people should be focused on. And, and um, yeah, I, I just... You know, I, I think that the, the competition, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I use a, a kind of an anecdote of, you know, I meet a lot of people that work at companies in, in the line of work that I do that are like, hey, I want to be a writer. I want to be an artist. I want to be a full-time writer. I'm so jealous. Right. And I meet just as many of those types of people that are artists, writers, musicians, whatever, who are like, God damn it, I wish I could get a job at Airbnb or Google where I could get free snacks and have a salary and not be broke. Yep. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, the grass is always greener, really. And, you know, there's no one ant that 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 dichotomy is is false. And, and people need to start thinking more about what they can do, what they want. Well, sure. You know, and not what's working for their friends. I mean, so. in order for Esalon to have survived for so long and so, you know, it's, and been as successful as it has been, it has to exist within the capitalist economy and make money. I mean, you know, like there's no way around it, you know, e- even if you have like a true spiritual movement, you know, that isn't fake and manipulative, like you're still going to have to make compromises because everything is based around money and the government doesn't support those kinds of endeavors. You know, it'd be one thing if, you know, like in like in the like the old school days where you know, for better or worse, religion was supported by the government, and so they didn't have to exist directly as capitalist entities. Doesn't didn't always work out, but 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 these days you don't even have a choice. You know, I mean, it, if that does that make sense? That like 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 Esalen and those sort of institutions, they can't be a hundred percent what they want to be just because they're limited by the way that the economy works in the 21st century. And I'm sure you've had to make compromises too uh, that you can or don't have to talk about because, because of money. 
Look, we all do. We all make compromises, but sure. But, you, but oh, you're totally. talking specifically about money not being the driving factor for work. But it's hard to deny that if you want to start a family, I mean, dude, do you know that that Wesleyan costs sixty thousand dollars a year now with a room and board? I mean, if if you want to send your kids to a private college, you have to earn bank. You know, I mean, like serious bank. Um, even more than our parents did, you know, and it's getting worse and worse. And so, you know, wh- wh- where's the cutoff, um, in terms of money, you know, how, how do we, how do we limit the, the, the impact of money on our lives to the extent that we can, I guess. Right. And I think it's, it's impossible. Like, you know, when I say that, I, I think people or specifically our generation is meaning is more important than money. I'm not saying money isn't important, right? Yep. And that's why I have that as part of one of the inputs in the framework for meaningful work because, you know, if you're not talking about money at all, you're talking about how to take a meaningful vacation, not how to find meaningful work, right? This, you know, we're talking about a job here. So it's got to pay the bills. Yeah, and as a parent, some, though, I'm not sure that that's context. the case. If you're a parent, I'm not sure that meaningful work is more important than money. If you're a parent, you have a responsibility to support that kid for at least 18 years. So, uh, you know what I'm saying? Um I, well, I, then, yeah. then you know you talk about priorities and kind of how yeah. do you balance these, and they're going to be. Oh, could you, you talk know, about that? At different stages. Could you talk about talking with, uh, with people who, uh, you know, that that you've worked with at camp or, or in speeches, workshops, conferences, who who are parents and have families, and, and how you sort of tailor message to them or what you say to them that might be different than talking to you know single millennials who are twenty five years old. Um, say that one more time. I mean, have you encountered people who are family already have families? Um, and, and interacted with them, and, and is it a different message to people who already have bills and mortgages and families to support versus you know a twenty five year old that might have some student loans, but other than that is sort of freelance. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, again, the circumstances are different. The majority of people that I'm reaching are the majority um, are young professionals that do not have dependents. Um, but I think that again, like I think people with kids, with families, a lot of data shows that purpose is one of the main things people are looking for in the workplace. And that's for all generations. Um, or that purpose is what, what gets people most engaged at work. That's what a lot of, a lot of the science, the data and the science shows. So I think that it's just different when you have like, oh shit, I have to pay off this mortgage or I have this house. I can't move. I can't quit my job. I have two kids that I need to feed the, 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 the challenges become different and their priorities shift, right? So that it's, you know, someone's got the, yes, they want meaningful work and the priority is providing for their family. When the 24 year old that's living in Brooklyn, the priority is finding an awesome job. Um, and it's just most important that they like make enough money to cover their rent and like buying Thai food on Friday night. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, it shifted. I, I, and I think that, uh, those are the, that, that's, you know, people have to, that's why there's no right answer. There's no one answer. Everyone's different. And if the book is not as a prescription as much as, you know, opening a discussion and opening, the, what I'm really trying to do is opening someone's internal dialogue and having these light bulbs go off and having someone think about it so that they have a basis for which to kind of grapple with these, you know, existential, what should I do with my life questions in a way that where it's, you know, it's, 
it's contained and it doesn't overwhelm you and it doesn't make you feel helpless and alone, which is kind of how I felt back in 2012, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, what's really interesting about your work is that there is kind of a spiritual component to it without you ever talking about religion or spirituality. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, do you have a personal spirituality that informs your work or do you just kind of keep it separate? I don't mean, I don't mean like religiosity, you know, I'm talking about like yoga, meditation, like, you know, mindfulness, like that sort of thing. Um, for me, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, exercise, meditating frequently. Um, I'm trying to do yoga weekly. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, know, I'm not saying just you, I guess. I'm saying, you know. Like a worldview? The, the worldview as put forward by your book and your speaking, you know, do you see it as having an intrinsic sort of spiritual message? And by spiritual, I mean, you know, like emotional and deeper, not just totally right. it's, pragmatic. It's, and it's so funny because, it, you know, I, I think I was arguing with a friend about this recently and I was saying, like, I'm not spiritual. Like, you know, I go to Esalen. I'm like the least spiritual person. This is crazy. And she was like, actually, I think you're one of the most spiritual people I know. Yep. And it was actually really I agree. I like that uh, interesting. It was really interesting for me to think about because what she meant was not, oh, you have mantras and you chant and you wear, like, crazy, you know, white dresses with beads and, you know, prayer, pray in front of crystals every night. What she was talking about was that I really I have a lot of values and I stay true to them and I care deeply about who I am and what I put forth in the world um, and how people are connected. So if you think about that as spiritual practice as kind of a way of seeing the world, then yes. Um, for me, that's kind of about interconnection, um, about building community and empowering people. For me, it would be about empowering people, really. Um, which is and, which is a spiritual message, which is a spiritual message, sure. Yep. Um, and it doesn't have to be tied to a, a, a religion or a full, you know a set philosophy well, it, as much as it's like Bob Marley, right? I mean, uh, Marley has some songs where he does talk about God and spirituality directly, obviously, but he also has songs that just talk about the world, but are in, innately and inherently spiritual. You know? Oh yeah. Um, there, it's yeah. his music is. It's spirit or, or it Dylan or any of the great poets. You know what I mean? Um, you know, poetry can be highly spiritual without ever having to talk about God or, or, or anything like that. Um, and so, yeah, that was just a thought I had. Cause I agree with who said who, I'm sorry. Who was the one who said was, you're very spiritual? It was, it was a, a good, a good friend of mine here in San Francisco. Okay. Well, whoever that good friend is, I just want to say thank you. Cause I agree. I think you are a super spiritual guy. And if, if nothing else, you, just you know for the audience out there smiley just has this very soothing uh presence usually um (laughs) you know uh, these these days always back in the day you know i mean come on when you're in college no one's consistent with anything but for the most part smiley's very soothing he always it like always brings down the awkward um level of, of any social situation allows people kind of relax and uh and I, you know and that's a spiritual quality to get people to be more themselves right i mean it, yes, it's that actually there you go yeah. that's really the empowering it's like buddhism and, you do have a completely yeah. different methodology in language but it's essentially this what, what buddhism is trying to accomplish one of the things, and this will transition if uh, yes. you want to talk about camp, yep. but like that to me is like 
like, and I know you're a summer camp, uh, you know. Bizzle, the Bizzlecast listeners know that I talk about Jewish summer camp all, all the time. I'm trying to get you to come to Camp Grounded. Camp <laughs> so make the transition. Jewish, Jewish summer camp for adults, first weekend in September in um, in Pennsylvania, Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, I believe. In, Look it up, Camp campgrounded. I know exactly where Waynesboro is. Get out of town. Uh, I get I can get any Bizzlecast listeners a discount, so just hit you know hit me up if you You're want. You're serious? One. It's in Waynesboro? I can drive there in like two hours. I'm telling you, man. Oh, yeah. But the, like to get back to it, yes, but it's, go get get people closer to themselves. And I think about for me, like this was where even even though I was you know when I first started going to to overnight sleepaway camp, uh, seventh eighth grade, I think um, you know I was I was aware you know, that I was a little bit different, let's say, um, than like the average person in high school, just, you know, like to read more, you know, I went to a big urban public high school. I like to read more than more, most people. I was a little bit more dorky, a little bit more nerdy, a little bit more kind of excited about things. And, you know, I kind of felt a little bit out of place sometimes at school. I felt a little bit like scared of talking to girls, um, a little bit awkward, And camp was a place where I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I'm actually kind of cool to be weird. It's cool to be weird, right? Mm -hmm. It's cool to, like, not be mainstream. Yep. It's cool to be, to listen to, like, Sublime and Rage Against the Machine and Pearl Jam and whatever. And it's cool cool to be a little bit different, right? Like, that's the first, that's why I love camp. Because it celebrates the the real and the weird and the awkward and the dorky and the like not mainstream douchebag fratty like dude yeah. right yep it's like the opposite of frat boy society yeah i mean yeah i i <clears throat> i talked about this at length i think in my pitch perfect commentary i can't remember it was a recent commentary but you know so, great movie great movie so you know i went to jewish summer camp in high school most people don't know that there are high school summer camps but indeed it was a sleepaway co-ed jewish summer camp for high school kids which is as amazing actually more amazing than it sounds like um and the more you think about the possibilities of what can go on there the better it gets but anyways you know i went to a very very good like one of the top ranked uh public schools in the state um for high school but it was very waspy and white and christian and kind of conservative so here i am this liberal jew had a very awkward um and uncomfortable and unhappy middle school experience um in jewish day school actually then transferred to public high school had friends and did okay but still felt like a total outsider and i show up at jewish summer camp for the first summer after ninth grade and like not only are there pretty girls all over the place but they're actually into the fact that i'm smart and a little weird and nerdy and so forth you know what i mean like they saw that as like a great thing um and that totally changed my perspective on shit you know i I wouldn't be the you know i I mean i I, i'm not the most confident person i still have self-esteem issues but trust me you know i wouldn't be nearly as stable and confident as i am now if not for that experience and not just because of the girls but just because it was an environment where I felt finally like I fit in, you know, at a very important part of my life. So why don't you talk a little bit about camp and how it's similar and different to, to camp for kids, even though it's for adults. Um, and uh, you can plug that and then we'll uh, finish up with the with the new book. So go ahead about camp, buddy. Yeah. So, you know, for people that, that don't have the reference, what we're talking about here is Camp Grounded, uh, summer camp for adults I've been a part of since it started in 2013. 
that my good friend Levi Felix started um, in in uh, in Northern California in Mendocino, and now has been uh, happening in both Northern California, North Carolina, Texas, New York. We did the first one in upstate New York this past uh, June. Oh, where and where in doing, New York? Uh, Cold Springs, New York, which is just about an hour, hour and a half north of the city. Nice. You can get there by Metro North, which is incredible. Wow. Uh, really beautiful. And this idea that kind of, you know, there's obviously summer camps for kids, um, but there's not really a place where adults can kind of just uh, play and be kids again. Um, there's not really that environment. Um, and the other, the only kind of like, the similar thing would be music festivals, I guess. Um, which are actually just more excuses for people to drink and do drugs and party. Um, and at Camp Grounded, there's, there's no drugs or alcohol. Um, so the whole idea is to be present and to, you know, be who you are and be, you know, uh, conscious of what you're going through. Uh, you don't use your real name, so you use a nickname. Um, Wait, seriously? Which easy. Yeah, what, the no drugs or the no nickname? The no, no name. Names? Yeah, so you're not, you know, because... You don't want to be tied to kind of, oh, cool, you're the VP at Facebook or you're unemployed or you're this person. It's about people kind of having a chance. To just but it's like actually confidential, like other people don't actually know what your name is. You, you know their name after camp, probably through Facebook or whatever. Can I be the Bizzle? Like not, of course. Yeah. Well, because I'm, I'm so well known. I'm so famous bizzle. as the Bizzle, you know. Like, <laughs> you are the Bizzle. Okay. You can be whatever you want. There's Rainbow Fairy. There's... You know, smooth operator, <laughs> tiny dancer, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, Hodor. There's all kinds of people. Then, um, yeah, whoever you want. And then, you know, that way Hodor. people kind of hold the door. So people people get to know you based on who you are, not just kind of your personal brand or uh, what you do for work. And so there's also no work talk. So you know, this actually ties nicely into the networking conversation we had, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that happens at camp is people really make new friends. They, um, you know, kind of build a community, but they actually aren't talking about work. So there's no, what do you do? Oh, cool. You're a writer. Oh, cool. You work at that nonprofit or, oh, cool. You're unemployed or, oh, let me help you get this. It's people completely connecting without under the umbrella of LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever. Right. So that's pretty powerful. And then the networking value that people actually get out of that, it's kind of ironic um, or actually quite intentional probably, that people actually have more epiphanies about their work, network more and build real relationships and authentic relationships with people without actually networking, if that makes sense. That's not irony, but I know what you mean. Yeah, it's not irony, but it's it's des designed for you don't think you're doing something, but you're 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 delivering what people don't think they're getting. The you know what I'm saying? I want to hone in on a word you used when you first started talking about this, which is play. Uh, right. You're not just talking about playing sports, which maybe you do, and which is great. We should all be playing sports. You're talking about play in the way that writers play or actors play, right? It, 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 it's allowing your imagination to you know allow you to think and act and feel uh, in different ways but in, in concert with other people right is that fair to say say that again and the note just the notion of the sort of the philosophical notion of play is to expand options expand opportunities expand possibilities but it, but play also implies the, a social aspect to it 
Totally. So it, you know, it's not just you at home, you know, writing a novel, which is great. That's that is a type of play. But 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 right. the one you're describing is social. Like, let's not be competitive and make each other feel uncomfortable. Let's do the opposite and be creative and help each other be free. You know, like let's help like someone who doesn't like to talk, you know, freestyle for the first time in their life ever. You know, like that right. sort of thing. You know, and the the, right. the yoga ashram that I went to is actually somewhat like that. I think your your camp probably accomplishes a lot more of it because there's less. You know, the, the ashram is so structured, but but just because of the people that are there, and there's so many kinds. Like, I think the audiences are probably similar um, in terms of the v- variation of ages and and gender and and uh, life experience and and so forth. So, would you say that kind of playing in, in sort of the 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 wider kind of philosophical sense is a goal of what you're trying to accomplish at camp, in addition to just having fun? Totally. I think, yes, exactly. This idea that adults need play, adults want to play, um, and that we don't have that many chances to do so. Um, And there's a lot of research that shows that play increases productivity, increases creativity, it makes people, you know, smarter, like all of this stuff. Yeah, which, which, let me just jump in, which to round it all the way to the back, and then we'll head to the final act here is exactly why some of these corporations are having you come speak to their people. Right. Because corporate right. culture has changed. And you know this. My dad, Papa Bizzle, spent 30 years working on changing corporate cultures with big corporations. Now, he worked with executives um, or, or sub-executives. You know? He was working top-down, but he was working on top down in terms of making corporate culture you know, better for, for the mid-levels and the low-levels. And, you know, showing that, you know, more hours does not mean more productivity and, you know, giving, um, you know, giving more freedom to, to workers made them both more productive and more successful in their work and so forth. So he was working on, on stuff like that. And there's a lot of people doing that. And so I, I do think there's a change. And, and it's not just, I mean, you always hear stories about, you know, Google and the tech companies and how loosey-goosey they are and how creative they are. But it's not just the tech companies, right? I mean, a lot of corporations are, are, are trying to, uh, um, I don't know, kind of open up possibilities of, of ways to, to treat their employees and so forth. Uh, did you find that to be the case, like with, with the court, like the, like the companies that you speak to, that that you what what you were doing was kind of part of maybe a larger corporate effort to shake things up a little bit. Um, yeah, I think that that you know, and I mentioned that kind of companies being more on board than you think with this message, but I think that that's true. It's more more focused on engaging young people, on kind of creativity, on play, on understanding that these kind of new new ways of thinking about not just life, but actually how to make the corporate environment more exciting mm-hmm. are becoming more mainstream. Yep. Right. Like, I, so exactly. And like, you know, we're doing actually, we're doing a camp grounded for Google, uh, in a couple of weeks, which is interesting because, you know, one of the reasons why Wait, camp grounded is founded, like we're doing a private camp for Google. No shit. Yeah. yeah. So they come up, uh, we're doing, uh, you know, an overnight, uh, one night, uh, two days, one night for Google up in 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 Mendocino in the Redwoods, uh, where we'll take the Google bus, we'll hit the Googlers on the bus, take their phones. There may or may not uh, be mushrooms there. I'm not. I have no information. I'm just saying. No, there's not. No drugs. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no drugs. At all. Go ahead. <laughs> um, 
which is really important to camp. Actually, it's like supposed. To, it's a very much a, so, a space for people to be sober. Yeah. There, yeah, there are a lot of people that are kind of uh, recovering or, or trying to oh, yeah. deal with addiction that go there. At, at the uh, uh, at the ashram, they, uh, you're not only even allowed to have caffeine. Really, mm-hmm. we do have caffeine. And There's definitely and it's vegetarian really good also. Actually. But yeah, go ahead. Um, and camp is not vegetarian. It was the first year, but there was an uproar. <laughs> it stopped after that. You should, you should yeah. have to make people slaughter their own pigs and chickens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that camp probably exists somewhere in California. Um, but yeah, so, so that'll be really interesting to kind of, you know, cause I think camp was really founded by people kind of, you know, living in the Bay area, kind of seeing like people's increased, serious addiction to technology, seeing Silicon Valley kind of take hold of everyone being like, hey, wait a second, maybe we need to step back here. Or maybe we need to have an environment where at least once a year, if not a couple times a year, you know, our phones are not dominating our lives, right? They're not the thing we look at first in the morning, last at night, 16, 65 times throughout the day. We need to have a place that's, you know, devoid of, free of screens. Yep. So it'll be interesting to kind of go the belly of the beast and, and take people that work at Google. And a lot of people that work at Google are really smart, awesome people that also believe that, you know, technology should not be the only thing that's important in the world. Absolutely. Um, and they're actually, you know, the cool thing about some folks that work at Google and, and engaging people that work in tech is that how do you actually, like, technology is not evil. Like, this isn't like a Luddite you know, commune of like hippies just being like back to the land, you know, everyone that goes to camp uses their phone is on their laptop, you know, either works in tech or works in an environment where they use tech. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying, Hey, how do we design technology so that it doesn't completely dominate and control our lives? How do we also value, you know, spending time in nature? How do we also value making face to face uh, interactions and making eye contact with people when we're talking to them. How do we create a world in which we don't forget that they're humans, not just, you know, that we're not just robots, right? Yeah, I, I could I could certainly use that. I mean, you know, one of the main reasons I see m- so many movies in the theater is it's the one thing where I, I you know, I will never, ever, ever pick up and look at my phone during a movie. And that's like right. that's like two to three hours of no phone. Otherwise, the temptation is constantly there, you know. And then I'm at yeah. I'm at the baseball game last night, and a friend of mine's live tweeting from Istanbul as everything is going to shit. And so I'm like wow. there with my mom and aunt and uncle, and like giving them constant updates about what was going on in Turkey while trying to watch the baseball game. Now that was an example of you know a positive usage, you know of. Uh, my priorities were right in that making sure my friend was okay was more important than watching a baseball sure. game. But, you know, point being, you know, that temptation's always there. You and I will talk off mic about the camp in Pennsylvania. That sounds amazing. Um, I have a good friend that's from Waynesboro. I think Dan is from Waynesboro, actually, Dan Schwartz. I'm almost positive it's Waynesboro. Yeah. Um, so, um, cool, man. So, so we're going to plug everything in the end in terms of websites, and I'll put all these sites and, and pages in the copy on SoundCloud. Does that sound good? Right. But you'll plug them at the end, both your personal stuff and campground and so forth. So I want to end by talking about the new book. Do you mind if I set it up for two minutes and I'll let you go? Please. Okay. So according to Amazon, your first, the first version of Quarter Life Breakthrough, can I call it version 1.0? 
1.0 was released April 3rd, 2014. Now, you have 91 customer reviews, but BizzleCast listeners, Smiley's book has 4.9 out of 5 stars with 91 reviews. I have I buy, I buy so many things through Amazon, but just research products and stuff through Amazon. I have I have a a system, and basically, if you hit ninety or hundred re- reviews for anything, it's it's critical mass in the sense of being somewhat trustworthy. So the fact that you have basically five stars with almost a hundred reviews is just spectacular. And it's not just that you have five stars; it's that people write long reviews who, who you know who really really. Uh, you know, love it. I mean, there's one review is titled "Warning: Do not read this book if you are not ready for change." Um, you know, stuff like that. You know, on uh, on Goodreads, which is notoriously tough on books, you're over five stars with over a hundred ratings. Phenomenal book sold over ten thousand copies. So you wrote the book, and we talked a little bit about this with the publishing company. So I'm going to ask you a two part question that'll lead into to your final spiel about the new book. The first part is, were you on board immediately with the notion of making it sort of a version 1.5 or version 2.0, both in, um, in terms of the title, but also in terms of the content? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an unusual thing. So this is kind of like... It is unusual, not, but it's interesting. It's very unusual, and I actually don't... I'm curious if there are other examples in the publishing industry. I'm sure there are of someone who self-published a book and then it kind of got picked up, but it, it, it doesn't really happen that often. You know what? It does. It does in one field. Sci-fi? Philosophy. Okay. Philosophy and like sociology, you know, get, but that's reprints because new information comes to light, you know, and stuff like right. that. Yeah. <laughs> new infor- certain information <laughs> has come to light. You're not privy to the new shit. No, dude, that did not occur, occur to us. That <laughs> thought did not occur to us. Uh, but what was what was, dip- it was it's interesting because I think in music it happens like let's say an uh, a band comes out with an EP and you know they make an EP they're selling it at their shows you know like maybe they get a you know uh, they get a, a cool gig or their stuff gets picked up by a local radio station and then a record label comes along and is like hey this EP is great it's eight tracks um, we want to keep three or four of the tracks record a new single get rid of a couple songs that, that aren't as good and maybe get record a couple new songs and, and make an album together. So I think oh, it this does happens happen. all the time. Uh, this happened to me yeah. recently, actually, you know, I love Les Mis and I just released yeah. my Les Mis film commentary. I love the play. I love the movie, love the music. But when the movie came out in Christmas of 2012, they only released like a best of like a single disc best of from the, from the movie, which sucked. I mean, it was great, but we, you know, uh, and I thought that's all we were going to get. And then I discovered a few months ago that in the third anniversary, I guess last Christmas, they released basically the entire soundtrack and what's the equivalent of a double disc. And I paid for all of it. So they double dipped. I mean, you know, they double dipped these things, DVDs, this happens all the time. They release just the movie and then they release the movie with the commentary. And then they release the movie with an extended edition. Um, so, so let me ask you this. This is a leading question because I know the answer. But is is your is this new book basically the, uh, a movie, but with a, a new director's commentary, behind the scenes look, deleted scenes, and so forth, or is it more than that? No, it's more than that. It's a new book. I mean, it's you know, it's not a completely different book. It's there are several chapters that are 
that are the same as that they, you know, they were, they're, they're, they're edited, but they're, you know, chapters that also appear in the first book. Mm-hmm. So the way I like to describe it, it's about 50 to 60% new, all the exercise, most of the exercises are new, um, you know, about 15 new stories, five completely new chapters. So this is a new book. I, I really tried to take, okay, this is working from the first edition. I'm going to keep it because if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, but how can I make this even better? How can I go a little bit deeper on kind of what meaningful work looks like? Right. You know, so I had a lot more examples of kind of people working within large companies and organizations, examples of not just entrepreneurship, but entrepreneurship, that is people making change within institutions and, and systems um, and kind of really going, going a little bit deeper. Um, but also it's short. I mean, the whole book, I'm looking at it now, and I just read the audio book for recording at the studio. The full book runs 191 pages. So that's short. I mean, that's you don't see That's shorter than many, the first book, isn't it? That's shorter than the first book. Yeah. Yep. So that was really, you know, I know my audience. Oh, that's right. I, I checked the page count, baby. I know my audience and I, um, you know, nobody wants a career advice book sure. that's 330 pages, sure. I, right? I have a ton of questions about this. Um, so I, I wanted to keep it short. I mean, it's not light. I mean, it's, it's serious reading with, I mean, it, it, it's light in that it's funny and it's easy to read, but it's serious, but it's also meant to be digestible. It's the type of book you can pick up on the plane, read it on a flight, you know, read it at home on the couch. It's supposed to be not intimidating. Can I ask you a very specific uh, question? Yes. Okay. So I'm, I want you to put a percentage on these three things out of a hundred percent. Okay. You know, I love the numbers. Um, okay. How much of it, the new book is A, expansion, B, contraction, or C, or and C, you know, brand new ideas that you either didn't have a couple of years ago or didn't, weren't able to, to yeah. include in the book? So, contraction, expansion, contraction, and addition. I guess addition and expansion sounds the same. I guess, I guess the third category is, yeah, brand new ideas, whereas expansion is something I wrote about, now I can expand on, if that makes I, sense. Yeah, I'd say it's about 40 to 50 brand new ideas, 40 50% brand new ideas, nice. um, you know, 30% expansion and, and uh, 20% contraction, something like that. Interesting. Um, so you got more in with fewer pages. That's really hard to do. Yeah. So I really tried to take, you know, to kind of put more, you know, some new stuff in there and then expand on some themes that I kind of, you know, touched on, but just didn't, didn't, you know, didn't go into the first one, didn't, didn't know about them. Um, so the first book, you know, I, I was, I was writing about this stuff, but I wasn't actually working in the space, right? I wasn't actually a millennial career, you know, advisor. I wasn't a speaker necessarily. I had just started. So the cool thing about this book is that I had you know, have kind of two years of experience under my belt of kind of knowing what works, what doesn't, having spoken in front of a bunch of audiences, meeting lots of people. So I can kind of, it lends more of a, I know, I know the space better. I'm almost in working in the field, whereas the first book kind of was more just a a manifesto. So this actually, you know, it's coming from a place of, I think, a little bit more experience. I'm not going to say that make having two years experience makes you, you know, uh, an expert in anything, but, you know, I do, I do think it means that, you know, I have a lot more insights on it because I've been, you know, speaking about it and talking to people about it for, for a lot longer than the first book. So that's, that's one thing that I think is, is different. 
And, you know, one of the reasons why I kind of had this more of an emphasis on showing all of these different paths and all of these different avenues. Sure. Can I ask you a question about the process real quick? Yes, please. Um, and then you can uh, let us know sort of uh, what the timetable is the next few months. Cool. Um, and uh, I guess uh, I'm not sure we talked about this. I've gotten little clips here or there during our phone conversations. But so once it was decided with the publisher that you're going to keep the title and it was going to be some same, some new – like once the basic parameters were set and you got notes from them about what they were looking for, from then until when you turned in the manuscript, how much freedom did you have within the guidelines that they had set for you? Actually, a lot of freedom. You know, I faced a lot of resistance early on because I was like, okay, here it is. I wrote this thing. It's not perfect, but it's pretty solid. How the hell am I going to write a book that's 50% new? I already wrote it. Right? Well, and with fewer so, pages. And with fewer pages. So it was really, really for me sitting down and getting to this thing was really hard because I just was, I was kind of stuck. Uh, and then I started to go back and look at my early notes and realize there was a lot that I never kind of followed up with and a lot of things I dropped. And then I realized, I really started to think about and my editor and, and agent kind of encouraged me to say, cool, what have you learned since the book came out? Right? Yep. What have you? What's new for you? What What would you? What advice do you have now that you wouldn't that you didn't have before? What What insights have changed for you? And that's when I started to be like, okay. And I basically like the way I kind of approached it was the first third of the book I wanted to be pretty similar because I thought that it really worked in terms of getting people on board, telling my story, really kind of setting the state of play for what I was talking about, which is important for me to resonate with my audience. And a lot of people told me from the first book, hey, I went through the same thing or I exactly, I identified with what you were talking about at your job in DC. So I really, I knew that was working, but it was the middle third of the book and also kind of changed into the middle half of the book really that I knew I could expand upon, which was actually looking at, um, you know, this fine, meaningful work piece and, and really delving into kind of you know, I conducted another 15 to 20 fresh new interviews with people about their paths and what they were doing. And Hmm. so that was, for me, was, you know, what I really wanted to focus on with the new edition. I have a quick, can I put a a personal spin on this? So, um, you know this, obviously, um, but so uh, me and my buddy uh, Eric Herman and also our friend from college, Dave All. Um, who was also one of the co-founders of Modiba, our, our music company. Uh, we started working mostly with African musicians. We still work with a lot of African musicians, some non-African musicians. But our first album was an Afrobeat compilation that we put together in 2004 when we were still seniors in college t- to raise money for what then was the beginning of the whole Darfur conflict. And we sold so many more copies and raised so much more money than we raised like 150 grand or something uh, with that album. And we, the next thing you know, we had Business Week calling us. Wesleyan was doing a cover sto- uh, story on the alumni magazine, you know, all this sorts of stuff. And then, you know, and, and you know, I, I think you've heard this. If you ever hear Larry David interviewed about Seinfeld, he talks about, you know, at each time this, the series was renewed, he would just start crying because he's like, I can't believe I have to do that again and make it even better. I have to write another 23 episodes. You know, and with us, it was like, how the hell do we top ASAP? 
the Afrobeat Sudan Aid Project. Right. Now, luckily, we had Via Farcatore, which we didn't know was going to happen at the time, even though Eric was, was eyeing him and had met him. And so our first real uh, full album, uh, new material, was Via Farcatore, who's now a huge global you know, uh, African music superstar that, that Smiley knows and has seen and knows his music. Um, point being, the second project is in a lot of ways harder than the first, um, I guess this will be my final question is, A, did you find that to be the case from just from a, a mental standpoint? And B, uh, you know, are you already worrying about what you're going to do for your, your third book or your next project? Yeah, I mean, I think it was I'm really, really proud of this. Uh, you know, as I said before, my one my book number one point five for me, it's, it's technically my second book, but I'm, you know, from an artistic standpoint, I'm considering it book 1.5. Um, because I mean, this is the result of four years of work. I think that the, the content is incredibly solid. I know it's going to help lots of people. I'm so excited for it to come out October 4th. Um, you can pre-order it now at the quarter life breakthrough.com hits bookstores, October 4th. It'll be shipped to you October 4th. Boom. Um, boom. <laughs> but yeah, as a creative man, I'm, I got, I'm looking right now. I've got my post-it wall here in my, yeah. my, uh, uh, my, my room in San Francisco and I've got six leading ideas for a new book and I'm starting to kind of hone in on what those look like. Some of them are still in the space of, uh, career life advice. Let's call it. Some of them are in the space of millennials, 20, 30 somethings. And some of them is, you know, you and I have talked about, yep. you know, kind of going more in a, in a fiction, you know, almost fiction, uh, self-help, um, direction. Yep. So it's really challenging to think about what's next. And I, I just know like one of the things that a, the, the, a dark cloud is hanging over me of this what's next, because as a writer, creative artist, musician, you want to, you want to have a sense of the next project, right? You know, you, if you, when you finish the, the, the project, you've got to have something to move on to because that's what you do, right? Writers write books. So my goal for myself is to, to hone in on that. I'm sorry. Was there a moment, um, while in sort of in the middle of the process for book two, or maybe in the beginning, because when you were planning the first book, it's like, okay, a, it's a passion project. I don't know if this is going to work out. I did better than I thought in Indiegogo. So at least I won't lose too much money if it doesn't pay off. You couldn't have known, you hoped, but you couldn't have known how successful it would be and that would lead to you know, a, a, a publishing deal. You know what I mean? And so in some ways there was less, a lot less pressure for the first book. There was a lot of pressure for this one. Totally. And, and based on everything you've told me and how the publishing company has responded to you and how they haven't pushed it back and they're ready to go and the press campaign I'm sure is already you know you know people are putting stuff together and you know they're clearly happy with it and that's amazing but I, I'm I was just wondering was there a personal moment during the writing of this book coming out October fourth where you were like oh my I can't do this like I I I, I just I can't do this like I, I'm, it's never going to be as good as as I want. I mean, a little bit around when I first started it. Once I got going, I was like, I got this. I'm on it. Right. But yeah, there was a moment when I was starting to put, the, put it together being like, uh, sh- like I, I regret pitching a, an, a, a revised new edition. I should have pitched a new book. Like I'm done with this subject matter. I'm tired of it. Um, I, I have nothing left in the tank. I had nothing left in the quarter life breakthrough tank. And then I kind of, you know, dug in and, and found, you know, that there was actually still more I wanted to say. 
now I definitely feel like I'm <laughs> I'm done with the quarter life breakthrough. Not in terms of helping people no. along and and selling the book and marketing the book and speaking about it, but in terms of writing about it as a as a subject matter for for a book. You know, some people really you know, they basically write new editions of the same book over and over again for their career and right. I, or or they write very similar books in the same space. And yeah. I just know for me I'm a really curious curious guy. Like I need I need new subject matter. So I'm really excited to nail to nail down what that is. You know, might be a book about my adventures in dating. <laughs> uh, might be a book about, you know, uh, you know, this what it's what it's like to uh, take care of yourself and do self care as kind of an overachiever, crazy entrepreneur type of person like we are. Um, might be a book about you know a, a modern day parable, um, a modern day version of the Alchemist. We'll see about that. Um, might be a book about how artists can make a living in the, in this current current paradigm. Um, might be a book about social media. Um, which has always been a topic, as you know, that I'm very interested in and passionate about and kind of what, what that looks like. So there's a lot of things I'm, I'm thinking about. And I'm excited to kind of hone in on that in, in the next uh, few months and really kind of take, take, take steps towards making that happen. Awesome, man. I'm so proud of you. I'm wondering if you'd be down to do just a few minutes of quick pop culture hits here. I have some random questions I want to ask you, and then we'll wrap up. You can drop all the websites and Twitter handles and so forth. Sounds great. All right. I know you don't watch sports that much these days. I don't either. But what do you feel about this Tom Brady situation? I don't even know what that situation is. I really... He was threatening this whole deflate gate. He was threatening to bring it to the Supreme Court. And... (laughs) No, for real. Isn't it, didn't he already get fined? Was he gonna? Have, well, now he's he's game? he's accepting the suspension. Now he announced that he's games? not gonna fight it anymore. Four games. All right, let him just take the suspension and get over it. Let's get let's move it on. Can you believe that that, that that's even in the federal court system? Something like that. Could he, not, is that actually like one of? Could he actually do that legally? They were threatening to do it. Yeah. Wow, that's uh-huh. ridiculous. Yeah. Um. So okay. So there's that. Um. Any, I know you love Game of Thrones. Uh, how did you feel about season six? Oh, I'm not done. Don't say anything. I'm no, I haven't seen up. it. I don't I'm watch on it. Episode seven, so okay. I'm still trucking tra- along. So far, so good. I know something crazy happens at the end of season six because everyone's been talking about it. It's all I can. I'm surprised that haven't been hasn't been spoiled for me yet on Facebook or something. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. Yeah, I sure. love it. I think it's entertaining. It is what it is. It's kind of like. Um, I just wish there were more good fantasy, fantasy. properties. I, I just hate that it's just one. I happen to not like it. I respect the show, and I respect people that do watch the show. I just don't like it, but I do love fantasy. I just wish there were more options, but that's the only game in town at this point. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised actually now with the success of the show that there haven't been more you know, copycats, and I know that there will be. I mean, especially. they keep trying to on uh, Netflix and you know, uh, uh, other like actual network channels, but they always end up being kind of geared towards young adults. So it's like yeah. you either have have this kind of corny young adult fantasy or this really 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 super intense super adult fantasy i like it somewhere in the middle of those two i'm just not getting it you're like a you're a josh whedon uh yeah i'm a josh whedon guy yeah Yeah. i like just like smart you know smart but fun smart but fun exactly it's it's fun and it's and it's pure joy it's pure fun and games but there's also like witty rye humor 
Absolutely. I would love for him to do a fantasy project. He's not really into that stuff. But, um, uh, okay. Um, have well, you, you know I love Deadpool. That's a great example. Oh, of, uh, yes. Fun adult and game fun. Yeah, and, and, and most, other than Captain America, Deadpool's the only successful uh, blockbuster movie this year, which is really interesting in terms of the amount of money it made compared to what it was supposed to make. X-Men bombed, Batman v Superman bombed, Tarzan bombed, Independence Day bombed, all these th- terrible sequels. Do you think all uh, Ghostbusters is going to do well? Everyone that's seen it says it's good. The reviews are yeah. excellent, so I don't I know. Think it's good, too. Um, the Star Trek movie coming out on Thursday is getting excellent, excellent reviews. It's got like an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. Um, nice. But, you know, it's, 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 it, although J.J. Abrams isn't directing it, he's still involved and he's great. Whatever. Um, so any movies either on Netflix or or on the big screen that, that we should check out that you've, that you've seen in the past I'm, month or two? I'm actually, I, I've been off the, I've been okay. out of the movie loop. Any no, other TV I, shows on Netflix we should check out? Um, Chef's Table. Chef's Table. Chef's Table. No, I don't do food shows. <laughs> really? Oh, it's fantastic. I'm just not that into food. I'm not. Really, I love food. Yeah. <laughs> it, now, if it was uh, about if it was about beer, maybe I'd watch it. Um. Yeah, <laughs> um. Okay. Um. So I got to ask you this, man. And this is not a leading question because we've we've <laughs> yeah, talked yeah, about right. this. It's not. It's not. But. Uh, let me put it, let me let me start it from my personal standpoint. I am not worried at all. Everyone else is, seems to be worried because of these so-called polls that Trump has an actual chance. Uh, if you really look at the facts and the fact that there's four more months for people to tr- hate Trump more than hate Hillary, I, I still think Hillary is going to win by a significant margin. If you look historically, even in like '84 when Reagan crushed uh, Mondale by like 20 percentage points in the actual election. Before the convention, it was like kind of tight in the polls. It always tightens up before the convention. So I'm not going to talk about Hillary versus Bernie. Bernie has been great the last month or two. Um, I'm I'm glad that he's sticking to his principles and that he's really pushing hard for parts of his platform to end up on Hillary's. And he's sort of taking credit, but like in a not annoying way for Hillary shifting left a little bit, which is mm-hmm. good. Elizabeth Warren, I'm sure, has been playing mommy between the two of there, you know, a little sure. bit. Um, that, and that's the main reason. If you just look at the sort of team surrounding Hillary, if you include President and First Lady Michelle Obama with Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and some other young voices, and you look at the speakers list for the GOP convention, you know, the, the Dem convention here in Philly should be a giant party in comparison. So I, I, I'm not worried. Are you worried? Um, I'm worried about the state of the world, yes. And I'm worried about you know, Donald Trump and, and what he represents and the supporters, um, that he's galvanizing because chance to win. This country is a weird place, man. I don't know. I know that I know. I mean, yeah, I mean the, the, the reason New York times CBS poll, I mean, polls are crap. We saw that in the primary season. Like, you know, it's one, I think it's, a news cycle type of thing. You never know who's being asked, what they're being asked. You know, it's, it's generally garbage, but the fact that the poll could come out at this time and, and that has them so close kind of does make me, it, it makes me concerned, but do I think he's going to win? No, I think Hillary will win and win handily. 
Um, the advanced but, metrics show are it's not this is one poll. This is a CBS poll. If you look at the advanced metrics, it still has Hillary ahead by a, a reason. Here's point. what I get scared of. Go. Like um weird shit's happening in the world. Um something happens around or near the election that's un unplanned for and people react in the way that, you know, dumb Americans sometimes act react and some and and the election doesn't go as we want it that's that's what i get worried about um i just think the demographics make it impossible for him to win i mean he's only winning among white people if if bernie supporters um show up in the numbers that they're expected and minorities hillary and and minorities yep uh she should win without a without with it should it shouldn't even it should be it it shouldn't be an issue and hopefully this nightmare of a you know a candidate and a platform of Trump bullshit will disintegrate into a. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a sports comparison that you can understand because you're you're a Patriots fan. I know you haven't been following much the last few years, but you were following when they were winning tons of Super Bowls. Yeah, I follow I follow the playoffs. But, but if not, you look at the Patriots, the year they win the Super Bowls, they'll they, they'll start off the season like three and three and four and four. And people are like, oh, my God, they're screwed. And then they'll just not lose until they get to the Super Bowl and then usually win the Super Bowl. Meaning I, I would prefer her to not, you know, peak now. You know, I, I'd rather people be worried that it's close, if that makes sense, and, and no, you know, get ready to have to fight for four months. If she continued to be ahead by 10, 12 points, you know, apathy, you know, could could start to set in, I suppose. Um, so, you know, it's, it's always, the, it's the hottest team that wins in sports. It's not the best team, um, when it comes to the playoffs. And I think that, that the Democrats will get, will get a lot of momentum, um, going into it. So I'm, I'm constantly having to consult friends and family about this situation. They just, you know, every time any little poll comes out, you know, um, and, uh, it's just unfortunate because, you know, the, the only major controversy surrounding Hillary at this point is the email thing. But even the FBI director has recanted on some of his his accusations. But that, of course, doesn't make it into the media because it's not as fun. Um, so I think everything's going to be all right, buddy. Um, yeah. well, pre- I like I like your confidence. I was yeah. happy to see that Hillary. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. Put forth a note that within 30 days she'll um, of of being elected she'll um, and put forth a constitutional amendment to uh, rescind um, Citizens United, which is awesome, which is great. Um, So, you know, I can get behind that. I don't know if I sent you or you saw the article written by Ezra Klein on Vox.com. I saw that about Hillary as a listener. You must have heard this. We both know people who have been in the Obama administration. I've heard this from people that she, that people who actually work with her, think that she is trustworthy and is a, a good teammate, which is not the image that's coming out in the campaign. I don't understand why she comes off as so untrustworthy when the people who work with her seem to have a lot of trust and confidence, including the president of the United States, who is experiencing you know very high uh, popularity ratings right now. Any theories? Is, um, is it just the Clinton thing? Is it just the Clinton thing and the money thing? You know, the Clinton. I think it's they've been around so long. Right. The Clinton, the, the Clinton stuff is just so. There's just been so many, you know, the scandals and this and that. Um, the alleged scandals. A lot of them Republicans have made up or exaggerated sure. in the last 30 years. Yeah. I just think it's like, you know, it's the same thing. It's like it's tough for someone to be in politics for 20 or 30 years and not have that, right? Yep. 
Right, I think like that's one of those things where it's like right, she's being punished for experience, which is never fair. Yeah, and I think maybe that there's maybe there's a sexist, um, oh, there definitely a sexist underlying thing there that just people we yeah, that's a double standard for women, and that people we just mistrust someone who's that powerful that's a woman or something. I've been saying this from the beginning. I really think when push comes to shove, maybe they're not saying it in these polls right now, but when push comes to shove in the election booth. I have to think that some moderate Republican women and some centrist, unaffiliated women will just go over to Hillary when they really think about Donald Trump and what he said and what he stands for and, and so forth. I have to I think so. so. So, all right, well, we'll, we'll uh, keep you all posted on that. Um, and uh, yeah, buddy. So, all right. So the book is coming out October 4th. Tell us where we can buy it, where we should buy it. And plug websites and social media and so forth. Go. All right. So the Quarter Life Breakthrough comes out October 4th, 2016. You can pre-order it now at thequarterlifebreakthrough.com at the vendor of your choice. Uh, you can support your ind- independent bookstore. Uh, buy it wherever you want. Thequarterlifebreakthrough.com. You can also check out smileypozwalski.com for more information about my speaking. Or follow me uh, on Twitter and Instagram at What's Up Smiley. Awesome. Um, now, will you be doing touring and speaking engagements leading up to it, following it both? Yeah, there'll be a tour that's kind of in the works, trying to get set up in October, probably late September, uh, early October. Okay. Pro- I don't know if I'm going to make it to Philly, buddy, but I'm going to try. <laughs> well, it's not really up to you, so it's, it's fine. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, you must be really excited. So is it in? I mean, is, is the book essentially, quote-unquote, finished? I know it's the finished written, but yeah. The book's done, yeah. Um, yeah, it, the, in, the, in the... Put a fork in book, it, Jerry. The, it, stick a fork in me, Jerry. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, it's done. The, you know, there, there have been like you know, a couple minor tweaks to the back cover and, and sure. what's called the lead pages, which are the kind of pages up front. What font that, are you using? What, what line type are you using? Um, the font for the, um, for the, the actual book, the text, do you know? No, I think they changed it. Did um, they? I'm actually not sure. I like the first one. I like the first book is very the first, mo- modern. The first book that. was, um, Bem- Bembe maybe. And, and Futura, I think I'm using Futura again for the chapter titles, but I'm, I forget actually which the font is for the, in- the interior. Awesome. Yeah. A good font is important. So, okay, so if they go to quarterlifebreakthrough.com, then that takes you to where? Yeah, the, the, oh, the I reason see. I don't give a specific vendor is because... You can uh, do all the vendors. There's, there's literally uh, eight vendors here, people, including ebooks and and ebooks, yeah. paperbacks, oh, yeah. whatever you want. Yep. So vendors don't like it when I favor one over the other. No, of course so, not, yeah. So uh, I'm going to let people buy the book where they want to buy it, do some price comparisons, pick your favorite vendor... Uh, the, the important thing is that you order it either before or um, on you know release date. That's the best for me in terms of the, the first week's book sales, which really count in terms of uh, how many whether bookstores will stock the book and whether any of the 
the national uh, lists take notice of it. So I mean, I'm you know I'm a Kindle guy, but I like you also like regular you know old school books, especially if it's a friend or a book that's important to me. I'll always buy the the but yeah, the paper edition. Is- but when are they going to just package it together? It's so frustrating. It's again this double dipping thing we were talking about with DVDs yeah. and CDs. It's like you know, it's like. For you, yes, I'll pay twice. I'll get the the Kindle edition and I'll get the the paperback edition. But for other books, like I'm going to get whatever the cheapest version is. In fact, I've actually uh, bought fewer books for Kindle this past year because I've started buying, as I mentioned earlier, used copies of these sci-fi and fantasy books and philosophy books online. It's cheaper. It's cheaper for me to buy a used copy of a book than to get an ebook. Um, wow. Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, you won't have to worry about that for at least a few months. It'll be all new copies all over the place. Um, and so uh, just really quickly again, so where's the best place for like Smiley News? Like Facebook page, Twitter page? Um, it's really smileypazwalski.com. Okay. For people that, that people should sign up for my email list. You can sign up for my email list at smileypazwalski.com or thequarterlifebreakthrough.com. It's the same email list. And I send out um, not too many updates, probably once a month. With updates on speaking engagements, articles I've written, anything, anything, any cool things happening. Awesome. All right, buddy. Well, this was great, as we knew it would be. I'm so proud of you. I can't wait for the new book. It's three days before my birthday, so um, that will be that will be an awesome <laughs> an awesome week. I, I hope I get to party with you in, live for this one. But uh, you know, if nothing else, we'll do a FaceTime celebration. Um, the day of release, uh, you should do some cool party, man. All the DJs and musicians, I'm gonna you do, know. I'm definitely going to do a launch party, probably in SF and maybe maybe New York if I'm there. That because I that's that's where my biggest communities are. Uh, well, if you you know we, we know we know like DJs and stuff in both places. So if you you know if you want to go go all out, let me know. Um, so cool, man. Anything else you want to say to the Bizzlecast listeners? Thanks again for listening. Keep listening. Lots of love. All right, people. Thanks for listening, and we are out.